Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons Storytelling. Um, we'll give a few minutes before we get fired in here. Make sure everybody uh, has a chance to show up that wants to come today. Hope everyone had a good New Year's, if I've not spoken to you already. Um, this is episode four, I believe. Yes, episode four. So today we'll be continuing the uh, story from where we left off, where the parties split, if you will. Uh, if you've not seen the first three episodes, uh, I'm going to do just the tiniest bit of recap to get started, but uh, not going to go back on that too much since I've already got that recorded. Definitely always welcome to go back and look at the previous episodes. Um, this one will go up immediately afterwards as well, so if you're watching this later... Uh, and you have any questions about anything that happened or happened previously and you didn't get to ask while we were live, feel free to throw those down in the comments and I will do my best to answer them as much as I possibly can. So, just getting everything set up here. And I did a little bit of updating this week on the website. Uh, added just a couple of new pictures, nothing major. Um, but... Uh, a couple of characters that I think at least one, probably both of them will hit today. Um, there's a chance we might hit a third one that I didn't get a picture up for, but if so, I will get that up as soon as this is over. It just depends on how far we get into the story today. Um, so there is that. Uh, let's see. So there we go. Synthario. Okay, I caught up on number three pretty much. Did it end right as the party split up? Also, hi. <laughs> yes, that's where we ended it, where the party decided to sp split to uh, proceed in opposite directions, east and west. Uh, so the group has split to two groups of four instead of one group of eight at this point, which I think I commented at the uh, when I did that at the end of the last stream. I did that in the game specifically because the eight of them together, the party was a little unbalanced. Um, at early levels... There are some classes and races that their perks early on really outclass others. Uh, Minotaurs being a great example with their uh, extra strength modifiers and such in combat. They do a lot of damage. So to throw things in that are a challenge for them are things that might be too powerful for the other party members. So especially when you have eight people running around, uh, I didn't want to be throwing really high-level monsters into combat with lower-level characters just because the experience is high, and then they level up too fast. If you level up too fast, you really uh, skip over really good opportunities to learn how to use different abilities. Uh, so I, I tried to pace that out, and splitting the, the party into uh, two groups of four also helped, because I knew that we'd see NPCs at some point or another as well, and I was concerned that uh, eight plus all the others, because that happens down the road. There are groups where there are a lot of people being taken care of all at one time. Uh, just can't fit through things exactly. And hello, James. Welcome, welcome. Uh, and they have feet. I remember that party every time I think about your minotaurs. Yes, my minotaurs have feeties because that's the way minotaurs should be. Um, because I like that. You know, that's I, I. Part of the thing for me is I want them to be able to wear boots. You know, uh, boots on hooves just don't work that well. Uh, and removes a bit of uh, magic items or armor-based kind of thing. And I just always thought they looked better with regular feet than the actual minotaur hooves. So, that's me. That's what I like. So, Alright, so uh, if we recap our party as we left off, the uh, two 
groups, if you will, um, were split into two groups of four. Um, both of the healers were in separate parties. Uh, so Artemis and Willow are, are separate. Uh, so each party took basically a healer. Artemis being the primary healer, uh, Willow being a secondary healer in the group. So she, her heals are not as strong, but she also does bring a bit more combat stuff being a druid, um, especially early game, than uh, Artemis did. It took a while for Artemis to really start get a hold of some cleric spells that could uh, be really offensive. And uh, so it took a little bit there. So Willow and Artemis are in separate groups. Um, now, uh, in Willow's group uh, was also Darsh, our Minotaur, who we were just talking about. Boots on hooves, mess up the grooves. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, so uh, we have uh, Willow and Darsh. We're in that party. Um, let's see. And then there was Fig, who, if you'll remember, is our gnome warrior, uh, who was raised by dwarves. We haven't really seen a whole lot of fig yet. We're definitely going to see some some of that pop up here more um, probably today and into the into the next couple of episodes. Because uh, that was another good reason of splitting the groups. It gave me time to really develop more individual characters, their stories and their interactions with not only the world around them but the other characters and so on. Uh, so there was that. And then let's see what else do we have to grab? She that. All right. All right, and then also in that group was let's see Willow, Darsh, Fig, and Mercy. That's who it was. Mercy was in that group. So Mercy is our human female warrior. Uh, that meant the other group, which was Artemis, Shadow, Zarin, and Dandy. Also known as Dandelion, our Kender group. So um, today we'll be talking. We'll be coming into a couple other different races that we haven't touched on yet. Um, some of you, if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons and such, you may be familiar with them, or even just other fantasy stuff in general. Uh, some of them are very D&D specific. Um, some of them, especially on the Dragonlance side, if, you'll, if you play D&D at all, you know Kender is a very Dragonlance-based race, um, and so is another one that we pop into today. So when we get to those, I'll give a little bit more detail on those races specifically, um, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, but again, if anybody has any questions as I get going in the story, anything you'd like to know about the characters or scenarios or even some of the mechanics behind how we did it in-game, uh, feel free to throw that in the chat. I'll do my best to try to answer them as much as I can, as long as I'm not, of course, giving away anything uh, that would be story later on. All right, so where we left off, uh, our two groups were splitting, and Willow, Darsh, Fig, and Mercy were going to the east. Yes? And then Shadow, Artemis, Zarin the Mage, and Dandy the Rogue were going to the west. We are going to be starting off uh, with our group going east. So that's going to be Willow, Darsh, Fig, and Mercy. Um, we will bounce between the two groups occasionally. There may be some days that I only talk about one group. Um, and then we may go to the next episode, maybe a whole other group. We may do half and half. It just depends on certain story beats, where we get to in the story. Because, uh, of course, I've never really timed this. Um, but when we played the game, we would normally de dedicate a session to a group. And then if we weren't done that group, the next session we'd continue until they're done before we'd switch over. So we, I try not to switch ma mid-major actual events. So we start off with a Willow, Darsh, Fig, and Mercy. And if you remember, they had just left the kingdom of Arduel, where Christopher was the new king, Prince Christopher, who they saved. Um, and as they traveled north, they kind of got to a 
an intersection. The road goes east or west. Uh, in front of them is a mountainous area. And because the uh, they were ported to this area, teleported to this area by Zoltan the Demigod, they don't know where they are in relation to where they first came onto the, the new world, the merged world itself. So they don't know if either the mountains they've been in or are they completely different mountains. They don't know. But the original plan was that the two groups were going to split up, one going east, one going west. They're going to travel for about three days. If they don't find anything, they will turn around and come back and meet up again. Uh, so that was the basic plan. And as we all know, player characters' plans do not bode well <laughs> for anybody. Uh, Neon says, pulling up your website to see these character spaces is helping me remember who is who. Yes, yes, definitely um, something I use a lot as well. And I will occasionally... I have them saved so I can pop the, the pictures up here on stream as well a little bit as we need them. Uh, so we will definitely see that. If you see a character on that page that you don't recognize, that's because they just added them today and we will be running into them this, this episode. Uh, one for sure. So this group began uh, traveling east and as they followed this old road, um, as one has happened very regularly on Merged World, uh, which again, at this point, the world has no actual name. Um, I have a name for it, but in, in, in this, it's so many different worlds together, everybody just pretty much calls their area what it was called before. So the world itself has no specific name. Um, so as they're traveling, very often you'll be traveling on one road, and then all of a sudden that road just stops. Now you're walking through woods, or maybe you're in a swamp, or you just end up at the edge of a lake. Sometimes you'll be traveling down a road and then suddenly the road changes to a completely different material. Instead of a dirt road, now it's a really fancy brick road. It does that for 50 feet or a quarter mile and then it goes back to the dirt road again. Um, so different parts of different roads may have merged together. So as the party is uh, moving this direction, they travel the first day or so without any real incident. Um, the road in the past that they're traveling really starts to uh, move more northeastern. Uh, they find themselves going, let me see if you're there, going up and around the mountains. I think that's northeast. It's The picture's reversed on my screen. So uh, imagine that way. Uh, they're going northeast around the mountains, and they don't have to travel far until they're almost going north again. Um, Willow uses her necklace once or twice, and as they're moving, it starts to go north. So that makes them say, okay, well, is this thing... It didn't go... The laser didn't point north. It went direct east and then north, is it literally guiding us on a path to the next item, or is the thing that they're chasing moving? And that's something that they don't know. Uh, they don't know really how the necklace works. It was just kind of given to them. They were given the basics, but uh, they haven't had to really deal with that, so it's, it's kind of got them a little confused. So uh, They're making their way, and they get to the end of the second evening, and of course, through the afternoon it starts to rain, and then rain very heavily. Um, and they see up ahead that there's a small townish looking thing, small group of buildings, uh, some basic basic lights, and they're like, okay, well maybe there's a, an inn or a tavern somewhere we can rent a room and get a dry place to sleep for the night. We've been on the ground for a few days since we left RUL, and the rain is making it, especially um, the rain and mud can be challenging for characters, especially when they're traveling. When you have someone who's walking along like Darsh who's, you know, eight and nine feet tall next to Fig, who barely hits three feet, um, both of them struggle in different ways. Heavier characters are going to sink more into the mud. It's going to be harder for them to lift their feet. Whereas shorter people, the mud's going much higher on them, so it slows them down. So a lot of times Darsh is having to make a point of moving slowly so that he doesn't get too far ahead of everyone else. Um, 
which is something Darsh deals with a lot, but he's been traveling with these groups long enough that he's he's kind of gotten into to realizing and sometimes he'll move ahead a little bit, kind of scout, then stop and wait for everybody to show up. But anytime that there's potential danger or it is dark or, you know, something dangerous potentially, you know, they're, they're, he's usually right in the middle of the group to help to kind of hold the line, if you will. He's Well, Mercy is, an, is, is a great warrior and so is Fig. Uh, Darsh his size and strength just makes him very, very um, major foe to pretty much anything they come across. And hello, Space Cowboy. Welcome for showing up to the stream. Appreciate you swinging by. Um, so, again, our party's traveling and they see this small town. So they make their way in and they don't see a lot of people. Uh, the towns are in adequate shape, you know, the buildings and such. They're nothing super worn down, but nothing's really fancy either. Very simple place. Um, and they see a building which very much looks like a tavern. It's not really large enough to be an inn. Uh, there may be a room or two, or maybe they're thinking maybe, maybe get them to let's stay in the stables, something like that. Uh, our characters are on foot, so they don't have horses, but you're getting a dry place to sleep anywhere, not sleeping in the mud is a good thing. But even if they don't, they figure maybe they can go in and get some information, uh, get in, you know, get a dry place, maybe a warm drink, something to, to get the chill out of their bones before they continue on. So they make their way in, and going inside the inn, of course, as normal, Darsh has to duck to get in almost any door, and this building's a little even more squatter than normal, so he's almost having to go down on his knee to get inside. And as soon as the party enters, like, the place just goes quiet. And the place is pretty full, surprisingly, for the amount of buildings you think you'd see here. And there's a lot of people in here, and it's a dimly lit place. Again, it's dark outside, it's stormy, just some basic candles, and the fireplace really is the only main set of light. Um, but everybody definitely ominously looking at Darsh. There's nobody else in here that's a minotaur anywhere close to his size. It appears that pretty much everybody is humans, or uh, see maybe a couple dwarves. They move in and they uh, they find themselves an empty table. Darsh, as usual, has to sit on the floor. <laughs> but even sitting on the floor, it's mostly because the chairs can't support his weight. Darsh weighs close to 360, 380 pounds without any of his equipment on. Um, so he'll break a lot of chairs if it's not specifically set for him. But again, even sitting down, the table's at the right height for him when he sits on the ground anyways. Um, so he sits down, and someone who clearly is a barmaid or, or, or owner, she comes over, and she's nervously asked what, they, what they're looking for. And they say, we're just looking for something to drink. You know, wine, ale, what have you got? She's like, okay, I'll bring something. Tells them the price. No real negotiating. She's, It's not real expensive what they're offering, and they have more than enough coins. They're also smart enough to know not to start flashing their money all over the place, so they're careful to count out, you know, pull the coins out of their pocket. They're very nimble, pulling out exactly what they need, because uh, last thing you want is anybody to know that you're carrying around a lot of coins in a place like this. Now, most of the people are definitely trying to uh, avoid their gaze. You know, if they look at anybody around, the people are looking down the drinks or mumbling quietly. Um, the group is, again, Mercy's and Fig are both completely weaponed out. Um, Mercy wears uh, basic um, leather mail at this point. Yes, she's wearing leather mail at this point. And Fig does as well, although Fig very often doesn't really wear anything chest. He goes unshirted. He'll sometimes wear like some type of shoulder or, or wear like a one side sling that covers over your heart. You see that a lot in fantasy. He would wear something like that to just kind of protect his heart from any type of arrow shots or stabs, but he, he very often did not wear anything else. And he's, his head's completely shaved by choice. He has hair. He's not balding. He just, he shaves his head regularly. So they look very, very, uh, you know, like dangerous folks, to be honest. Uh, all except Willow, who just is an, a very attractive elven female, uh, who's just kind of sitting there in her robes and um, she, even in the wetness, she keeps her, her hood up most of the time. She doesn't like it in crowds, as we've talked about before. 
as the our characters are kind of taking their drinks and they order some food, they get something warm. It's just a basic stew, but it's flavorful enough that it, especially something warm they've hadn't had in a day or so, traveling through the rain. Um, they're kind of looking around the group, and they can see that a lot of people like sort of sneaking looks at them. But there's two groups in particular that seem to be paying even more attention to them than everyone else. One is a group of about five men, all appear to be human, and they're on a table closest to the door, uh, where our characters are sitting now, or two-thirds of the way into the common room. Uh, there's a small bar on the north end, and they're trying to get as close to the fireplace as they can, but being a chill night, all the tables directly around the fireplace are already full. Um, now, just to the side of the fireplace, in a shadowed corner, are two other people. Uh, one appears to be a uh, dwarf, or dwarven in height, so dwarf, a little bit stockier than you'd expect a gnome to be. And the other one could be a human, or a kender, or a small elf, uh, very slight in size, uh, very thin, um, not like skinny thin, but just very like small, or could almost look like a, a human early teenager, someone in the twelve. But it has a, definitely a male figure from what they can see in the shadows, and they are very openly stealing looks at the party. Um, but you know, again, no, nothing blatant, like no one's coming over and talking to them. A group asks a couple questions of the barmaid, the only person who's really speaking to them, and asks where they are surrounding areas. Hey, we know the world's crazy. Is there anything around here like a castle or another kingdom? We're traveling this direction on the road. Can you give us anything about where we are? Any maps? And she's like, no, not a whole lot. I've lived my whole life in this village. Um, let me see here. Syntharia, is a kender smaller than a human? Yes. Um, a kender, imagine if you would, a kender looks a lot like an elf, except stands on average three and a half to four feet tall. So almost like an elven child. And in many stories, um, they're dressed up and they pretend a kender is an elven child. Uh, it's the easiest way to kind of hide them in a group, uh, especially if they're with elves. So yes, they, they, they very much look like a, a, a very small, thin elven child. Um, they very, almost all, have a, wear a top knot. So they have long hair, but they wear it kind of off the top. It's almost like an Asian style. Um, or they'll wear it off the side, um, switching back and forth. Uh, their weapon of choice is called a hoopak which is a staff sling. So it's a staff with a metal point at one end, and the other end it forks where there's a slingshot in it. So they can use it as a staff sling, they can use it as a blunt weapon, they can use it as a stabbing weapon, and if they take off both ends, it becomes a blow dart gun. Uh, it's the most common weapon that Kender use, uh, but there are a couple other special Kender weapons out there. Nothing we're going to see in the near future. Uh, Dandy uses a, a traditional hoopak. Uh, Darsh uh, uses a battle axe and a longsword, if I remember correctly. Um, that's a very cool weapon. Yes, I made one once out of metal, actually, in a, in a shop class <laughs> in high school. Junior high. It was high school. Um, but anyways, they... Uh, so that's again, and then Darsh, like, he has a weapon. He has a battle axe on his back. Uh, Darsh... Or sorry, that's Darsh. Fig specifically uses a warhammer. Uh, Dwarven in make, of course, made by his... Uh, his adoptive father, and then um, Mercy, usually at this point, is using, um, I believe she uses a Morning Star and a small shield, uh, but she has a couple other weapons on her as well. She's got multiple things, weapons, Morning she has, she has a, usually keeps a short sword on her and several daggers, but primarily she prefers the Morning Star. Uh, Willow uses a staff, it's, it's a quarter staff, well, druids don't have a lot of weapon choices, and if she's in combat, usually you're in trouble. <laughs> she's want to keep her out of a physical fight if possible. 
Uh, but they ask for some information. The barmaid says, hey, I've lived in this town my whole life. We know the world went crazy out and around, but things here have been pretty much as normal, although we haven't seen less travelers coming through. Um, historically, uh, if you were to travel this this road continuing up the direction you're heading north, um, you would get to a coastal city. She gives them a name. It's obviously not going to be there because I don't have the name of it right now. But you get to a coastal city in about a day and a half. Uh, we don't know if it's still there. I'll be honest, I've not, I've not gone that direction. We've heard that it's not, that now it's something up there, but no one that I know has actually gone there and come back. A few people have left, but no one's come back at this point. Party thanks her, continues with their stew and bread and, and their uh, ale uh, to warm themselves. Um, Willow normally drinks tea, if I remember correctly. Warm tea. She always has tons of herbs and stuff on her, so usually she just needs some hot water and she makes drinks herself. She does not do a lot of alcohol, as I recall. Now, Mercy, Fig, and Darsh, all of them like to drink. These are three. These are basically three warriors <laughs> that um, do enjoy uh, a, a good beverage or two at times. Uh, and Darsh has always been impressed with both of them because, again, he's a minotaur. He's big. He can take in more alcohol than anyone else and still be standing. Uh, but uh, Mercy holds her own. And... Darsh, of course, coming from Minotaur society where males and females are very often treated as equals, females just good warriors as males, that doesn't, you know, he has no problem with the fact that Mercy is, is a female. And, and same with uh, Fig, coming from a Dwarven society where, again, can be both. Uh, Fig can hold a lot of alcohol for the sm one of the smallest people in the group, and that impresses Darsh a lot. Um, sometimes to the point that he has to be like, okay, slow down, Fig, you're, you're getting a little toasty here. Because uh, Fig definitely likes his drink. Um... They're enjoying their stuff. They're having their stuff. It's a nice warm meal. It's an adequate. It's not the best they've had, but it's far from the worst. And they get to the point where they ask, is there a place to stay for their evening? And they're like, well, she's like, we, we don't have any rooms here, um, but there is the barn out back. Uh, we keep a couple cows out there, and occasionally people have their horses parked in there, but there's probably there's some old hay in there. It's relatively dry. Um, for a couple coins, you're welcome to spend the night there, You know, especially if you're planning on swinging in here and getting something to eat before you leave. We could use the money. And uh, the party's like, well, great. That's kind of what we're looking for. Excellent. It's better than being out in the rain. So as the night, as, the, as they're going on drinking, people are slowly starting to filter out. It's not super late, but uh, it's getting there. It's definitely dark outside. Dark anyways because of the storm, but it's definitely getting later in the evening. And it comes down to basically our characters, some miscellaneous people, the two people, the dwarf and the little dude, uh, over next to the fireplace in the corner, and then the group of... I think I said six humans. It's five or six humans. Humans, it appears, uh, closer to the door. Um, the group at the door finally get up and pay their tabs, the, and they, they head on out. So it comes down to just our characters, uh, miscellaneous one or two people hanging out. Usually you got your, your town drunks who are sitting there drinking as late as they can until they get kicked out, and then the group's next to the fireplace. Uh, as it gets late, they, they're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and get some sleep. We want to get started early in the morning. Hopefully the rain will have stopped. Um, we're, they did find out that the road heading north uh, does get a bit firmer. Uh, it's definitely uh, cobblestoned more than it was just dirt. Uh, so it'll be easier to travel than it has been. A lot of muddy, broken areas they've been going at this point. So they, uh, they go in and they make their way to the barn uh, to get some rest. Now, they're only about halfway to the barn uh, before... You know, really, Darsh and Fig and Mercy all just draw their weapons. They they know well enough the situation uh, just from experience. They can hear the movement even in the rain. Uh, they see the slight movement in the shadows, and they see that something's about to set upon them. Willow 
has the best hearing in the group, and she has infravision, so she actually, uh, as, as, as does both Fig and Darsh, uh, but in the rain and such, in the cold, it's, it's harder to use that. So she didn't she didn't catch them guard, but the, they're a group of things, we'll say things, because it's dark and it's rainy, they can't tell, kind of set upon them. Um, obviously the things that were jumping them thought they were going to have a better surprise than they had, and were a little uh, caught off guard by the fact that the characters have a... Uh, were able to respond so quickly. So a combat ensues. Again, it's thundering and raining and lightning, so it's not really drawing any attention from anywhere around. Um, but it's going relatively quickly. Um, Darsh, of course, being the size he is, um, he's having a bit harder time maneuvering in the location they're in, because they're walking beside the building closer to the barn. So there's not a lot of room for him to move around, and he's also trying to avoid stepping on or hurting any of his smaller allies, and they're all trying to be back-to-back -back in this situation, especially to protect Willow, who's trying to use um, one of her more common spells, a tangling vine that comes up to try to wrap around the feet of the enemies and hold them in place. Uh, it's, it's a common spell for druids, and definitely irritating if, if you're fighting one. Um, so they're trying to do that, but uh, the other group is smaller and very quick. Uh, more, again, they're more human size, so Darsh is having a hard time really unleashing his full abilities in this situation. Um, there's a cry out, uh, a small cry out of pain as uh, Mercy takes uh, a deep cut in her shoulder. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was the shoulder. And uh, Darsh getting angry, but afraid of leaving his friends, is just trying to cover more of her protection. Of course, Mercy being a, or herself doesn't want that. She's trying to stay in there, and everybody's really trying to protect Willow in the second, in the center. Um, it's about that time, and I want to stop for just a quick second and point out about that time um, is a phrase that my characters have always learned to fear. Because if I say, about that time, something's about to happen. <laughs> if I'm like, oh, you're traveling at about that time. it uh, There's a couple little phrases like that that uh, when they came out, the party would be like, oh, God, no. Uh, but about that time, something actually happens... Uh, to relatively benefit them. There are some flashes of steel in the light, and two of the attackers seem to fall to the ground. And Darsh, not sure what happened, thinking, okay, something else is joining in the battle, tries to maneuver himself to try to defend from that direction, and he feels the earth literally moving under his feet. Um, the couple of things that were, of, of figures that were wrapped up in the feet were tangled in their vines, are all falling over, and Darsh is struggling to, to stay on his feet as well. Um, but the earth is literally almost like water waving, and everybody's kind of teetering, trying to stay up. So you can imagine, that's happening with the ground in the rain, and it's wet, and it's muddy, um, and people are trying not to fall. Um, but then, almost as if like an explosion, dirt comes out of the ground, almost like uh, tentacles, and starts smacking really, really hard, uh, the things that were attacking our party. And literally just knocking them against walls and sending them flying down the alleyways and so on. Magic, obviously. Uh, Fig, Darsh, and Dandy are in mercy. None of them have magic abilities, really, so this has never bodes well to them. And they turn and they're looking, okay, what's this? Coming down the alleyway, and they see the two figures that were um, in the room. Uh, the dwarf with his hands out, he's casting some type of spell. Clearly the one who's been uh, moving the earth. Um, Darsh, nervously, you know, gets his weapon and moves towards them, but Fig kind of stops him and holds his back and says, oh, no, chill out, chill out. And Darsh, okay, well, I don't know what you know, but I don't know, but he says, okay. 
kind of stands back but keeps his weapons at the ready. Mercy, keeping again Willow behind her just in case. Willow preparing to cast a spell if needed. Um, the figures walk up and they realize that it is a dwarf, uh, and it is a human, but he's really, really small. Um, and the little guy's like, "Hello, friends." Seems you'd run into a little bit of trouble this evening. And the party's like, we thank you for your intervention, yes. Um, we're not sure who these were. Aren't you looking? The people are scrambling off, except for the one or two of them that are literally on the ground with daggers sticking out of them. And they're like, yeah, we were set upon by them. Not sure what they were or what's going on. I said, ah, it's road scoundrels, bandits. Uh, they've been casing the road for the last week or so, watching for the next uh, hit, and you guys happen to be the ones. I'm surprised they really attacked you, especially being the as well-weaponed and armed as you are, and size of your big friend here. I'm, I'm surprised that they took it on, but pickings have been slim lately, so I can see uh, you guys were the newest targets on their roll. And they said, and they said, well, we appreciate you, you know, Darch's like, well, we appreciate you stepping in to assist. Um, and they're like, well, we didn't really have a lot of choice there. We've been waiting for you for a while now. I was starting to think you would never show up. A party again, nervously, are like, you know of us, we do not know of you. I'm like, yeah, unfortunately, an incredibly irritating thorn in our sides told us to find you on this road and where to take you home. I'll be honest with you, if there's one thing I can't stand, it's doing the gray man's bidding. But I learned a long time ago that if we don't, worse things usually come of it. Sorry I'm drinking so much, I'm starting to come down with a cold and my throat's getting a little sore. Um, the party's like, the gray man? And the dwarf is, the dwarf who has a Scottish accent, as all best dwarves do, and I don't do a good Scottish accent, so if it slips out once in a while and it's horrible, forgive me, please. But he's like, I, he goes like, uh, Dam Zoltan told us to find you and you know bring you back home with us. And uh, all he said is to give us a brief description, but your big friend was the easiest one to find, of course. Not a lot of his kind walking around here. Yeah, stay hydrated. Yeah, my wife and uh, mother-in-law have been sick for over a week. My wife really, really bad right now. And I think it's finally hitting to me. Uh, so that mixed with a got a pain in my jaw that's been coming in and out for the last couple of months. Not tooth pain, but a jaw pain. Just irritating. But anyways, so the two the two new people come up and they put their weapons away. Well, the little guy goes and pulls his daggers out of the brigands or brigands, how you want to pronounce it? Rogues, thieves, out of them. Cleans them off, their bodies of course, and puts them away. And they introduce themselves as two people. And I'm going to show you who they are. The human's name is Smallzius Early, and the dwarf's name is Rohan. Now, if you remember those names, you'll remember that these were good friends of our old pal Rafe Firemoon, part of his party of characters. I was when Fig recognized the magic of Rohan because Rohan is a cleric of the Dwarven god, or the god of the mountains. So he recognized the spell, he recognized the Dwarven grew up around them. He knows dwarven magic when he sees it. So that's why he's like, okay, it could be an evil dwarf, but 
it's not hit. If, if it had been against us, we'd have been smacked already. Smallzius is a, actually a warrior with very roguelike tendencies, uh, but he's a he's a knife fighter specifically. So he's got daggers crisscrossed and in his boots and in his belt. Knives are crazy, both melee and ranged, which um, a lot of times playing D&D, you pick one or the other, but he's experienced in both. So they begin to explain that they were traveling uh, themselves when Zoltan appeared to them and uh, said that you, these people, uh, this group of party, were going to need their help, and they're like, well, you know, we're kind of busy trying to do our own thing here. What do they need our help with, and so on and so forth. All Zoltan would tell us is the damn weapons were still in play, and that you guys were trying to gather them up for him, and that helping you would help us on our quest. And we've, if, you know, what are we going to do? Zoltan, while he's annoying, he is usually trying to do the right thing, especially by uh, Fire Moon and, and the Kingdom. So we agreed to come and track you down and, and take you back with us uh, because the Kingdom of Fire Moon did come through the merge. Um, and it's a, about a week and a half travel north of here. And it's a good distance. We've been traveling. For, we've been traveling for several months at this point, um, but we know how to get back there. We're well versed in this relative area. Um, and they're like, and the characters are like, "Oh, okay, cool. I know a little bit. We know a little bit of your story, and we definitely know Zoltan because he's the irritating prick who has us doing this quest this time." Um, but they're like, "Well, our other friends are traveling, so on. So we're supposed to be back in just a couple of days. We can head that way, and so on and so forth." And they're like, "No, we need to go right away. We're on a timetable." He said there'd just be four of you, so four of you is all we're going to take. So we need to get you back to the kingdom as quickly as possible, at least from what he told us. Now, normally, our characters are not very trustworthy with new people, but I mean, the fact that they know Zoltan and all of these type of things and, and know about them, uh, they're like, okay, well, we'll go with you. But at the same time, you know, themselves are like, okay, are these really who they say they are, or are they the. Could these be minions of the bad thing, the darkness that's trying to get the weapons as well? Maybe we're being led astray, so we'll have to be careful, keep our eyes up. Slightly trust, don't totally trust. The fact that the Dwarven uh, Cleric is Dwarven Cleric helps, but they are in neutral, so they neutral clerics can very often help either alignment, good, neutral, or evil. Um, so just because you're neutral doesn't mean you're always a good, we're helping the good folks. Oh, one second. My mouse is dying, as it usually does halfway through a stream. Plug that in real quick. Um, so, they're like, well, it, it sucks we can't go back and, and get our friends, but we can't even be sure they're going to be there anyways. They may be busy doing something of their own. So, we'll go ahead and we'll we'll go with you to the Kingdom of Fire Moon, if that's where you're really taking us, um, and travel along with you. So, both Rohan and Smallzius uh, basically join the party at this point, and very quickly acclimate themselves in. Um, both of them are very upbeat, friendly, jovial people. Um, uh, they're actually of the group. They were kind of the ones that you'd find at the telling stories and tales and joking around. And, and uh, Early really likes his uh, likes his drink as well. And dwarves, of course, it's in the blood. Um, and they've got some pretty strong uh, some strong alcohol on, on, on their part uh, in a flask. They're passing it back and forth to the party. Everybody starts traveling. The rain stops after a day or so, and, and they decide to continue traveling with them, even though it's going to be about a week and a half travel to get to where they're looking to get. I want to say it's a week and a half to two weeks. It was somewhere in there. 
Distance is relatively confusing in the early parts because I, when I did set this up, I didn't have a lot of my world maps designed yet. Um, so spaces end up being longer or shorter down the road when I actually finally get everything mapped. But I'm pretty sure it's about a two-week travel. And over that time, there's, you know, Sons and Dragons. They run into a couple of miscellaneous adventures, get attacked by this, have to fight a monster of this type because they run across an owlbear in the woods or whatever the case may be. So some minor stuff. And in each situation, both Smallsius and Rohan are both incredibly useful to have around. Uh, very great in combat. And Rohan's magic is top-notch. Um, he's a relatively high-level cleric at this point. I'm going to go ahead and minimize those. But uh, if I, anybody needs me to pull those back up, just let me know. Um, but they're uh, pretty, pretty well-leveled characters at this point, uh, much higher than than our than our, our group of friends that have been traveling along. Um, but uh, you know, as they're getting closer to the area, and they don't run into anything real major, and they kind of share stories about what's going on. Hey, we found this. This is the situation. This is what happened to us. Um, Rohan and um, Smallsius tell their story. Um, that after the fight with the Baron, also Nilat and his people, um, as the world started to fall apart, because during this, while well, the the two Firemoon brothers were up fighting in the tower, remember these guys were uh, fighting against all his minions to try to keep them at bay, um, and they were winning. Actually, they were doing well, though there were some injuries. We'll talk about that later. Um, they lost one of their party. Unfortunately, did not survive the battle that they know of. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but eventually, uh, they got to the point where you know they were both ready to run up and, and help. Um, when Michelle, if you'll remember, who is uh, Ray Firemoon's love interest, came running down the stairs, yelling that they had to get out of there. And the party, of course, don't want to leave Rafe, but you know Rafe knows his business, and they they know to do what they're told, especially in an emergency. So they grab Michelle and they hightail it out of there, and they're barely outside of the building. Um, when the merge happens. And they feel themselves, imagine like a nuclear bomb dropping behind, just hurled forward kind of thing. And when they came to, um, they were on the outskirts of the Kingdom of Firemoon. Don't know why or how. Uh, it was a great distance from where they were, completely different continent on their world. Um, but those who survived were there. The only person that was not there was Rafe, who of course was still up fighting his brother. Um, and their um, mage friend. And let me grab his name real quick because I haven't mentioned him a lot yet. He was an elven or half-elven mage in the group. And he was um, he was seriously injured in the battle. Uh, they saw him fall and they and basically die. They saw him die. I straight up, like, dude took a serious injury, fell to the ground dead. Of course, in the run to get out of there, they didn't have time to grab the body, so only the living were hurled back to the Kingdom of Firemoon. When I say in the Kingdom, like, they didn't land in the front door. Like, they could see the keep in the distance. It's up on a mountain, as I described previously. So they uh, they land there, and they're like, oh, they're, we don't know what's going on. Rafe's not here. Literally, he's hundreds of miles away on another continent. we got to figure out what's going on. Um, they, you know, they've still got their own injuries that they're dealing with. They want to go and save Rafe. They got to get Michelle to safety. Uh, she's obviously not going to come with them on an adventure. And so they get back to the kingdom. And of course, Michelle's excited to be home. Her brother's there, and the people of Kingdom of Fire Moon. Basically, all of the kingdom came through the merge. Um, but when they got through, 
outside of what would be the kingdom's lands. And this was this was always a, a cool thing. Uh, or I, I liked it anyways. Um, everything that would be considered the border of the kingdom of Firemoon came through. And everything at that border is different. Um, it's almost like something chose to bring that whole chunk of existence through this. Um, and that's the same way that I said it to the players at that time when I first described this. It's like something chose it, even though every single thing else they've seen about the merge just seems completely random. Things hurled together, and like somebody just took a bunch of toys and threw them on the ground, and that's what happened. This is one of the only things that they've come across that looks like a specific chunk of existence was pulled into this new world. So they wanted to go out looking, but of course the kingdom having the problems that is, and they very quickly learning about the merge and that everything beyond their borders was different, they were stuck with a very, very tough situation. The kingdom, of course, has to be protected and has to be run until Rafe can get home, because the hope is that Rafe is somewhere here as well, but they don't know. And uh, so what they did at this point is that Tabork, if you'll remember, was the best friend Minotaur of um, Rafe, basically took over the role of king. He's not a king. He's just taking over as basically a regent to, to a regent to run it until Rafe is back. He's accepted. He had taken that position for Rafe before. There were times when Rafe would have to travel and he would leave Tabork to run the kingdom while he was gone. They were very best friends. They trusted each other horrendously. And the people are like, okay, we trust that. He's always been a hero to us. He's protected us before. We have no problem with that. But it's always under the understanding until Rafe can finally come home. Uh, Michelle, as the basically queen-to-be, uh, basically helps co-run it with Tabor. Um, now, the rest of the party, which was... Um, of course, we had our... These two we got right here now. Rohan and Smallsius. And then there was Thickaway, which was the Kender friend. Uh, they decided to all basically go in different directions, see what they could find out. All of them are experienced travelers, see if they can find any hints of their liege, Rafe, or if they could find maybe hints to what happened with the world, because they were kind of in the in the blue too. They are one of the only few people that they believe it had something to do with what was happening between Rafe and Nihilat in that tower. Um, they know more of the story than pretty much anybody else in, in this world, except for maybe Zoltan and our characters. But they're like, okay, we we've got to do that. Um, so they're traveling and they're telling that story. So we've been looking, um, the two of us had run into each other, uh, a few days ago because we meet up every so often, give our information, same with, uh, Thickaway, um, and then split up again, trying to go different directions, finding what we could find, branching further and further out. While we were together, Zoltan appeared to us and said, we needed to find you guys because helping you would somehow help our quest. And our quest is to find Rafe. He would give us no more information on that. I don't know how you're going to help us. But if you do in some way, it's worth taking the chance. So they're all traveling, bumbling their way back up to the Kingdom of Firemoon. Uh, they've been back and forth to it ever since the merge. So they check in every so often, make sure it's okay, give the information to Dabork, uh, meet up with each other, share maps that they've got a hold of, or say, hey, this is a dangerous spot, don't go there, this is a good spot, you can go over there. Well, um, Tabork is trying to run a kingdom now he's trying to do all the kingdom stuff. Are there other cities or towns near here? Do I need to open trade? Do I need to... Is something dangerous? Um, and there was always a group of guards, like knights or uh, defenders of Kingdom Firemoon, who were known as the Knights of Firemoon. That's, that was what they did. Uh, both Rafe and Nihilat had the Knights of Firemoon. 
Um, but Rafe's Knights of Fire and Moon have, be, have they've taken on some more numbers. They've uh, added on and increased it because now, not knowing what the world is, they feel they're going to need a, a bigger defense. We need to, we need to be more protected because who knows what's happening? Is Nylat still out there as well, uh, or any of the other people we were fighting? Um, what new threats came through this world? So the uh, Taboric has been greatly boosting up the and, and building up the Knights of Fire Moon along with a couple of Rafe's uh, generals. Back in the day, Rafe had a list of all the different NPCs that were living there. The people lived in his town, and he had all those knights and such. So that was something we did in quite depth back at that point. But I'm just kind of breezing over it now because that's very past tense. So as they're making their way up to Fire Moon, they're about half of the way there. Um, when, and again, like I said, they fight an owlbear in the woods. I love throwing owlbears in the woods. It's a favorite thing of mine. But they fight an owlbear in the woods. They fight some creatures here, some goblins, whatever. Because um, it's a dangerous world out there now. But as they're moving along, they run into a very specific situation. And this one's a situation of note that I have to go into a bit more detail. As they're traveling through the, through the woods, and they're on a path, the road itself is winding through the trees and such, but it's a, still a pretty well-developed road, and they're in pretty good spirits. They've become friends with Smalzius and Rohan over the last week. They've been traveling about a week at this point. And then as they're moving along, they hear screams of pain and combat from up ahead. Well, these are all heroic people. What's going on? Someone could be in trouble, or it could just be a battle. Clearly it's not an ambush. At least we don't believe that, because they're being awfully loud. So drawing their weapons, they all proceed to move forward quickly but cautiously. Very common phrase in Dungeons & Dragons. We move quickly but cautiously. Coming around a bend, they see that there are a small group of ogres. If you don't know anything about ogres, they're also really, really big, stinky, strong, uh, and very dangerous. Not usually that's smart. Some can be. It depends on which uh, world or, or uh, class they're coming from. Uh, but these ones are not that bright. And all around them on the ground are just small, dead bodies. Um, some of them appear to be potentially dead, almost dead, definitely very injured, and they're just basically, they, as the party comes around the, the, the bend and see them, they basically, they see them crush another one. And these are all, in, the ogres are just laughing, just killing all these little people. When I say little people, I mean small. I mean smaller than even gnomes. So, to the party, it almost looks like children. This immediately does not go well with the party. Um, especially Fig. Uh, in Fig's mind, almost immediately, he sees the same situation that he was in as a child, where he was, I mean, if you'll remember, Fig's family was attacked by gnolls, and his parents were killed and tortured, but right before they could kill him, a group of dwarves came upon them and basically saved his life. But no one else survived the battle, so that's why he was raised by dwarves. In this situation, just, it all hits him at once, like just it just it's like a flashback to his own childhood, and he just basically becomes enraged, and without waiting for anyone else, just charges in, which takes even the party by shock because he's a little guy. For him to be moving quick, he literally goes into what would be considered in D and D a berserker style rage, and just literally running forward, takes his hammer, and the ogres are t slowly turning like, "What's this noise?" They hear people running and so on, and he just literally hits the, one of the knees of the ogres, and you can just hear the crunching of the bones under the weight of that hammer. And that hammer is very sturdy. It's dwarven made. 
And Fig, while being a little guy, is just cut. He's just muscle. He was raised by dwarves. He worked in the mines. Uh, he has been a warrior since he was a child. And Thank you very much, Chris Jury, for following. Appreciate the follow. Thank you. You can hear just that kneecap crunch, and the ogre, shocked more than anything, just crumples over as his leg beneath him just twists as his leg almost snaps from the weight of the hammer. The other ogres take it back only for a second, raise their clubs ready to start pummeling Fig, but Fig is moving quickly. He's small, and they're big. He's moving between their legs, just thwacking at legs, and you can hear him just hitting him. There's a group of, I believe it's four ogres, if I remember correctly. And about that time, of course, knives come flying in. Darsh comes in with his sword. Mercy comes in with her morning. Just magic. The whole group just comes in, and it does not take long uh, for the ogres to just be completely decimated. Um, and it takes a minute for them to come fig down, because the ogres are dead, and he's still smacking away. Like, he's pulping these things, if you will. Um, and it's, it's really Willow that steps up and calms him. Because, you know, anybody else came up and looked like a warrior, he might have just snapped on him. But Willow with her frame and him being, a, they've all, they're all very defensive of Willow. They're very protective of her. Uh, that kind of snaps him out of it because he's like, well, I, I can't hurt her. His in instincts are like, no, i got to protect her. And it kind of brings him out of this rage. And he's just sitting there just spattering brain matter and just he literally where he was just pulping these things. But he calms down, and, and uh, he's just, you know, the whole party... For him, it's after any type of... He's not a berserker by trade, but a berserker rage in Dungeons & Dragons. Afterwards, you are very tired. It takes a lot. You have an adrenaline rush. You'll take pain that normally would kill a person, and once it all runs, and it all hits you at once. So he just kind of stumbles and falls back a little bit, and, you know, Willow helps steady him, and they sell himself. They try to go through, and they figure out what it is that has happened here. And very quickly, they find that the... Ogres had come across a group of these creatures, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. Um, and for no other reason, because they could, decided to start killing them. And this is where I was talking about a race earlier that was very, very distinctly from the Dragonlance world of Dungeons & Dragons. If you've not read Dragonlance, you're not going to know anything about what I'm talking about, but I'm going to try to be as descriptive as possible, because they're important. The race is called Gully Dwarves. And gully dwarves are a forbidden mix of dwarves and gnomes. Um, occasionally, uh, a couple if a dwarf and gnome were to um, couple, then you may get a gully dwarf be born from them. Um, which is really a half dwarf, half gnome, but neither race really accepts them. Uh, but gully dwarf became the name. Um, and gully dwarves are very small, smaller so even than, than gnomes. They're usually a little bit smaller. But they've got a bit more of a thicker, stockier build of, of a traditional dwarf. Um, they are overwhelmingly unintelligent. Um, they are very simple. It doesn't mean that they can't be you know, pricks. I mean, they, they, they can be whatever. But they're, they're very simple in nature. They normally live in trash and in filth because they're not accepted by any other race. They're scroungers. Uh, so a lot of times you'll find them in old ruins or you'll find them in a, like the sewers or wherever. They, uh, they will group together for safety because pretty much every other race just discards them as a garbage race. There's no respect for them. They have no actual leaders. They'll usually have a leader of every group, which if I remember correctly was the high bulb is the name that they most commonly get. Um, each group will have its own high bulb and usually that's just the one person who's slightly smart enough to realize they need a leader. Uh, but they can't count, they can't read, they can't write. Um, they're very innocent in nature, most of the time. Um, but they are, again, 
disregarded and disrespected by nearly every other race in existence. Um, especially gnomes and dwarves who don't like to normally mess with them. Um, but in this situation, being small as they were, just a group of them probably traveling, maybe from the merge, whatever happened, look, they were traveling through this area, they looked like there was about 15 to 20 of them, um, and the ogres were just killing them all. Our group decides that, you know, as horrible as the situation is, they're going to try to do their best. They'll bury the gully dwarves, you know, give them a, a burial. They, they, they light a fire. They're going to go ahead and bonfire it. Because, again, you can't bury 20. It's dirt and rock here. They're going to go ahead and give them, you know, consecrated death. Uh, Rohan's like, he's going to say a few words. And as they're building the bonfire, and they start to gather on, on the poor, unfortunate, and very, very damaged bodies of the gully dwarves, um, Willow is, you know, trying to say right. She can't. She's again not super strong. She's not carrying them. She's trying to gather right, say a little prayer over them. And as she's saying a prayer over one, its hand comes up and kind of grabs her arm, which startles the hell out of Willow. And she calls out, and of course everybody comes running over, and they realize that one of the gully dwarves, covered in blood and such, um, is still alive. Um, immediately, Rohan and Willow jump in there, because Rohan's still a cleric, he still has some healing, and using all their healing spells and everything they get, and the wiping away, they, they heal the gully dwarf enough that he's going to survive. And it is a young gully dwarf, probably no more than 15 or 16. Uh, gully dwarfs, even though they're uh, the children of two races that are very long-lived, gully dwarves live a normal human lifespan. Because of the danger that they live in and, and how often they're dis mistreated, it's surprising they live past 30 or 40 at all. Um, but occasionally, if they in a big city where they're not being messed with and they live in the sewers, you'll get some that live a little bit longer. So, this young one, covered in blades, start wiping him off, and they realize that he has some injuries, obviously. He, he got hit really hard, it looks like, on the back of his neck and his head, but um, most of the blood and such that was on him really came from the others. He was knocked unconscious, and just from the scene, they, it, it appears that he was knocked out, and that the ogres didn't realize he was still alive, and while they were just killing all the other ones, he was unconscious, partially underneath it of another body. But they managed to heal him up, um, and he's unconscious for a while. They, they decide to spend a little bit of time here, because they got to make sure we can't just leave him. He's injured. we got to make sure he's okay. Um, and they're like, we'll take him back with us to the Kingdom of Fire Moon. We don't really have gully dwarves there. I mean, there aren't any that live there, but, you know, we'll we'll ask Taborik. Maybe he knows where there's some more gully dwarves. We can deliver him to his own people. Something of that nature. Um, as they're camping out there and, and resting, and they've obviously moved away from the scene of the gore. They've moved a little bit away after burning everyone else. So make sure everybody else is dead. Nobody else lived, by the way. They didn't burn any living people. Um, they move a bit down the road and make a camp so they're not next to the... Because they're already carrying crows and vultures and such. They leave the ogres out there, because screw the ogres. Um, but they, they went ahead and they got the gully dwarves taken care of. And they move down and they make camp for the night. And um, Fig, again, the situation, very reminiscent of his own life, feels very protective over him. So he, he taking watch, he, he's staying by the young, young gully dwarf. And he's you know, Gully Dwarf's unconscious. He's 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 healing. The spells heal him, but he's still unconscious. He's resting. Uh, he wakes up a couple times. They give him take a little drinks of water and stuff, and then he's out again. But after a day or so, the, the Gully Dwarf is up enough where he's he's able to, to talk a bit, and and he's they he speaks the common tongue. Gully Dwarfs don't really have their own language. Once in a while, they'll know a word or two of dwarf or gnome if they live in a dwarven or gnomish area. But usually, dwarves and gnomes run them out of their homelands as quickly as possible, so they end up learning the common tongue. Um, 
And he says that his name is Moog. Because, again, Gilidors have very interesting names. His name is Moog, M-O-O-G. And Moog has no last name, because Gullydwarves don't have last names usually. Um, and, of course, he's asking where all his family is. And they have to basically explain to them that his entire family was just slaughtered by ogres. Not an easy thing to talk about. Um, Moogan says that he only has flashes of it. He remembers getting hit. He remembers seeing blood and laughing and screaming and pain and all of that. And, and then he just saw an image of something with a big hammer come through and start wailing at the ogres. And they very quickly realized he was, he was conscious and flashes enough to see Fig's attack on the ogres. Um, Fig, again, protective over the young, young lad. And Moog, seeing Fig, a little guy, but wielding a big hammer and muscle and being treated by such respect by everyone else, is very impressed with Fig, almost in a heroic way. He views that Fig saved him. I mean, everybody saved him, but he really looks at Fig, uh, who he calls Figgy, by the way, very often. He calls him Figgy. Because Moog is here to stay for a little while. And Moog, right there. Now, he's, again, he's a little bit stockier, but for an innocent kind of look, uh, this is really what I, I kind of pictured from it, especially his hair, because their hair is just dingy and they're, they're pretty messy. They've cleaned him up real well. It's probably the cleanest he's been since he was born. Um, but uh, his hair's all unkept, and he's just got the tiniest bits of one or two whiskers popping out of certain areas because he's just starting to get to that age where he can even grow any bit of a beard. Um but he, he, he very much quickly takes to following Fig around. Uh, Fig being the only person almost his level, or almost his size. Uh, so he follows Fig around quite a bit. And Fig very very quickly takes almost like a, a fatherly role. And he becomes protective of Moog. Um, with the goal of, okay, we're going to get him to Fire Moon. We're going to make sure we get him with some of his people. We get him safe. Because once we have him safe, then I'll feel better leaving him when I know he's a bit better protected. Or maybe... Tabork will find a use for him or a place he can live in Firemoon. And Rohan and Smalls are like, mm, we'll see, you know. <laughs> they breed like rats, you know. Um, and that's the thing, too. Uh, gully dwarves, when breeding, just make more gully dwarves, for the record. It's rare for a dwarf and a gnome to make a gully dwarf. In fact, most of those races, uh, it's against the law <laughs> for that to happen. And definitely there was some nervousness when uh, Fig moved in with the dwarves, but the whole thing is that we don't want gully dwarves. It just doesn't happen. Uh, but gully dwarves, together breed like rabbits. Um, so there's usually a lot of them. They just don't live a real long time. So Moog ends up joining along with them, and after, like I said, a day or so, he's up and moving around enough that he can travel, albeit a little bit slower. Uh, so they continue their traveling to the kingdom of Firemoon, which takes, again, half a week, maybe a little closer to a week, because they've had some delay. So it's been almost two weeks since they first met in that town where they got jumped by the brigands. Brigands, however you want to pronounce that. Um, and they have finally reached the outer border or boundary of what would be the kingdom of Firemoon. And, and very quickly, um, several well-armored men on horses, uh, which are knights of Firemoon, and they, have a, they wear the Firemoon crest, the tabard, if you will. Um, they recognize Smallsius and Rohan very, very quickly, and they're like, ah, Lord Early, Lord, you know, welcome back. It's good to see you. Who are these big people? Pointing at Darsh. And he's like, oh, these are friends, they're allies. I'm taking them to see the region. Like we will escort you, yes. And they several of the wars provide them with a, you know, an escort to get them into the kingdom. Um, it's been a a month or two since either of them have been back 
Rohaners are small, smallest, so they're uh, even they get shocked by how much has changed in that time. Um, rebuilding, if you'll remember, the uh, Kingdom of Fire and Moon was attacked by Nihilat a little bit, and there was some damage done to it. The castle's been rebuilt. A lot of the buildings and such, with the merge shaking and everything, uh, definitely caused some things to break and buildings to tip over. Everything's been rebuilt, if not better. Um, in fact, it's expanded. Um, there's already be, them being the largest kingdom anywhere in this area. Um, there's always going to be a small trickle of refugees or people who, you know, their home's not there anymore, like our group. Um, people who are just trying to find a place. Um, and here's a place that's already opening up trade with some of its neighbors, and we'll find more about that a little bit later. But um, it's already it was already a pretty big bustling, becoming a bustling city or kingdom uh, well before the merge. Uh, so at this point, with Taboric's leadership, it's, it's still continuing to grow. Um, not wasting any time, they make their way to the to the castle itself, uh, where they're very quickly ushered inside by the guards and such. They run into Michael, who is the basically head of the castle. He keeps everything up and running, the steward, if you will. Um, and Michael, ah, good to see you. Ooh, you've got some big friends here. Okay, very cool. Yes, uh, Taborik is in the uh, council chambers right now. He's just talking with some of the, the local merchants about a trade deal he's trying to work out with the nearby kingdom or something. So they wait a minute for Taborik to get done, and then Taborik comes comes out of the room, and Taborik is a minotaur who is, again, very, very uh, noble-looking. Um, I apologize, I did not get the picture of Taborik where I can post it up for you, but I do have a drawing that I found that's very Taborik-like on OnlyDraven.com. If you go to the website and you go look at the tab at the top, it says Characters. Uh, you'll see all the pictures I post up of these. There is one there for Taborik. I apologize, I, I just until this second realized I did not put him on here where I can share it with you. Um, we'll go ahead and shut move down here. Um, but Taborik again, is even big for a Minotaur. He, he's much larger than even Darsh is. And Darsh is like, okay, well, shit, you're a big dude. Uh, but immediately, the thing that catches the most off guard that Smallsius and Rohan forgot to mention is the one thing that is missing is his arm. Darsh's left arm is, is gone right about just a little bit above the elbow. Um, it was cut off by his father in that final battle um, when the merge... When all that happened with the two brothers there, um, but he would still grab Michelle with one arm and got her the heck out of there when it was time to run. Um, but he did lose his arm in that. Um, when they woke up, he was still bleeding. Um, luckily, they were able to heal him, get him back to the kingdom. He was healed. He was out for a little bit, but uh, he's taken over, but he only has one arm at this point. Uh, that was an important thing that will be more important much, much later. So I did want to mention it. But Tabork has one arm, but he only needs one good arm to run a kingdom. And he's doing a damn good job of it. Um, he's introduced to the party here. A um, little odd look at uh, Gullydorf, but they're like, okay, all right. And then they're like, yeah, he's, he's with them. They'll watch him. Fig puts his arm around him a little bit, like, hey, don't be eyeing my boy. Um, but he's like, yeah. Like, they kind of explain what's happened. Uh, they go over, this is what happened on the way here. Tabork's like, okay, well, I'm, I'll send some knights that direction as well, make sure there's no other ogres on the road up around there. We'll have them check around, make sure there's there's not any other dens or nests of ogres. That's the last thing we need on our borders right now, so I'll send an expedition in that direction, make sure there isn't anything else floating around there we need to take care of. Um, they're introduced to Michelle. Uh, if you remember Michelle, that's Rafe's fiance. He was kidnapped by Nylat early on, uh, used a bargaining chip to keep Rafe in check. Um, but she's home, and she's perfectly fine at this point, uh, doing her best to 
Well, Taboric runs the kingdom from the that side. She does the taking care of people. She uh, meets with people. She helps the people in general in the town. She's one that goes out there. Even though she's a queen-to-be, she's very hands-on. She's out there meeting with the people, helping rebuild, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the people just adored her and Rafe. You know, the fact that, and they always liked that Rafe was taking a common woman as his wife. You know, she wasn't a princess, nothing. She's somebody he fell in love with. Um, and and she had been there since the town started to grow, so everybody already knew her. So that was something else that endeared the town to Rafe, is that, you know, they viewed, ah, he's marrying someone, of, even though he was technically not of nobility, um, other than he was given a kingdom by a demigod. I guess that kind of counts a little bit, but in the traditional sense. So they discuss what's going on and talking about, you know, this is what we've learned. There's still a darkness out there. Zoltan has us looking for these weapons because it's the only way to set things right again. Um, Rohan and Smallsis are like, Zoltan showed up to us, said that these guys might somehow be able to help us find Rafe, or at least they said complete our quest. We're assuming that means find Rafe. Didn't say how, and they don't obviously know anything about him, but we don't know. Uh, Tabork, very quiet for a minotaur, listens intently to everything he's being told and with information and the stuff he's learned about the world itself and he's like, he's like, it would, it would seem that our paths have crossed by design. Uh, the gray man, once again, is using mortals as his tools to get his work done because he can't hold on to a group of damn weapons um, that seem to just be causing all sorts of havoc in the world and probably what caused this entire situation. Um, we'll help you any way that we can, definitely. Um, if, if, you, if somehow you're going to help us get back to Rafe or get Rafe back to us, then it's worth us to help you. What is it you need? And they're like, well, we, we don't know. I mean, we got, we got this necklace. And they don't really, we haven't spun it since we, because, you know, we don't want it to lead us off in a different direction of where we're going. We have the necklace, and it leads us to an item. And Darsh is like, you don't need that. I have one. And they're like, you have one? He's like, yes. When we woke up, one of them was that one of them was with us after the merge, um, so it's it's here. I have it locked in the treasury, and they're like, "Okay, well, um, can 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 we have it? <laughs> Excuse me, can we have your overly powerful artifact that can bring about the break of the worlds?" Deboric is says, "This is something I'm going to have to discuss with my friends here and with Michelle. Technically, the all these belonged to Rafe." in our eyes, and uh, as such, they now belong to Michelle. Because um, in their eyes, they, they, they've married an all but paper. So we'll have to discuss this. Um, you, if, if it's fine, stay with us here for a day or so. Give you plenty to eat and drink, get you warm and such, and uh, let you rest. You've been traveling for a while now while we kind of discuss and figure out what needs to happen next. The party's like, well, we don't really have any choice. I mean, there's no way we're going to break it out of all these people here. So, all right, sure, we'll do that. So they get to hang out a little bit and uh, meet with some of the town folks, and they get to restock some of their supplies. They do a little shopping. They've got some coin they came across as a reward, you know, from Christopher uh, from helping out there. So they buy some new gear, maybe upgrade their weapons and armor a little bit. Um, Fig, no matter where he goes, has Moog with him because two reasons: a, Moog's going to follow him anyways, and b, he's just afraid that if he leaves Moog on his own, someone's just going to ooh gully dwarf and just do something horrible to him, and then Fig will have to take up the whole damn kingdom. Fig doesn't need that kind of drama, so he keeps Moog with him pretty much all the time. He even stays in, in his room, and, and Fig has taken it upon himself to try to teach the boy a little bit, um, because he's like, he, in his mind, okay, if I can teach you to be less gullyish, maybe people won't give you as much problem. So, Gullydor's aversion to bathing, he's getting more of that. You got to bathe regularly. 
You gotta stay clean. You, you can't stink. A, you sleep in the same room as me. I don't need that kind of drama. B, you know, people are not gonna accept you if you smell bad all the time. So they got him some new clothes. He teaches him how to take care of his clothes. You know, teaching him things like not to just sit there and pick his nose while in sitting at the kitchen table. These are important things that Fig is trying to teach Moog. And Moog, wanting to be like Fig, very, very apt student, um, seems to be taking these lessons relatively well, which really shocks everybody, including Fig. He's like, hey, he's actually remembering some of the things I tell him, which is pretty good. Um, Moog asked for a couple very special things. I made a couple of special requests, and Moog not or Fig not knowing what else to do, and say, okay. Um, he shaved Moog's head for him, because Moog saw him sh shaving his head one morning, and he's like, I want to have shaved head too. So they shaved Moog's head, and he just, big toothy grin, he's missing some teeth, he's got this big toothy grin, he lost a couple from the ogre hit in the head and such. Um, and in his new clothes, they get him a belt, and he wants a weapon too. Well, they're like, the last thing we're going to give a gully dwarf is a weapon. First of all, no one around him is going to tolerate that, because he's going to do more damage to himself or the world around him. Um, so they came up upon a, uh, a, a deal. They buy him basically a regular hammer, just a workman's hammer that, that a carpenter would use. And to Moog, that's his, that's his hammer. He sees Fig's hammer, and that's his hammer, and he's like, yeah. And he likes to run around pretending that he's fighting things, and you know he accidentally breaks things once in a while. Fig tries to keep him under control. Uh, but his battle cry is, Haya bunk. And that became a running gag back then in something you'll see quite often. But Haya bunk is because uh, he wants to bunk things like Fig does. Um, Moog became a very, very uh, popular NPC for a long time. Uh, but Moog does his high up bunk and he has his little hammer tucked in his belt. And uh, sometimes you'd catch him with a pot on his head because sometimes he sees Fig wearing a helmet and he's like, no, no, the pot on your head's not going to work. Take that off. It's the handle's swinging around and it's in your eyes. It's not going to happen. But he's always trying to be like Figgy. So after a few days of hanging out, resupplying, getting some rest, doing those things. The uh, party's called in, and they, they've met with different people, and they've eaten dinner with everybody. They, they don't bring up the, the, the artifact or anything of that nature. They want to they decide they're going to wait to see what happens there. Um, but it's very courteous. Everybody's friendly with them. They get to meet everybody, and everybody's been really, really nice and very friendly. And like, oh, this is good people, you know. If nothing else happens, maybe we'll come back and hang out here when this adventure is all done. Because uh, definitely Tabork is doing everything he can to learn about the world, and he's already got way more information about the area and everything. Um, so he is he's definitely, with the feelers he's in it and the making trade deals with other towns and kingdoms and such in the area, um, he's very, very quickly getting a big lay of the land, getting a, a large stretch out. And in his mind, he's just doing what's best he can do for Rafe, so when Rafe comes back, he can just carry on. Um, so they're like, okay, we'll, we'll continue here. And they're, they get finally called in, and they're all sitting in the council chamber. Uh, Rafe had a room that was like a round table, but it wasn't round, but it was a table that they all could sit at and talk when they needed to, or have council meetings and so on. Um, and they're all hanging out in there, and, and they're kind of chatting about it, and, and Tabark is like, after much discussion, we have decided to aid you in two ways, specifically. Way number one, we're going to give you any supplies that you need. I know you've already bought some stuff, but anything else you need for your journey, we're going to give you. You need horses, we'll give them to you. On a wagon, you're fine. You need weapons, armor. Um, we can supply you with anything that you need that's within our, that, within our means that we have. The second thing is we're going to go ahead and we are going to give you the artifact weapon. Um, there are some here that believed it might have been safer here because Lord knows, the, the gods know these things cause more problems than they're worth. 
Um, but we're willing to take that gamble if somehow your success is going to return our Lord to us. Um, and so Tabork brings out a box, opens it up, and what he pulls out of it is an axe, a very big battle axe. Um, and this was one of the artifact weapons that very often Tabork would even use in combat. Um, way back when they were gathering the weapons up, this was the axe that Tabork would use. Uh, but he's like, okay, we're going to give you this. Um, the characters have told them about their chest of holding that Willow carries. So they can put it in there. So once it's in there, the necklace, nothing finds it. If you remember that from the last part, when they're inside there, they can't be sensed from an outside area because technically they're in a, prime, a different, separate prime material pocket. If you're not sure what that means, tell me, and I will explain it in more detail. But basically, it's its own little space inside the chest of holding. And while it's in there, their necklace doesn't find it. Neither, so far as they believe, can anybody else. So the darkness, whatever, whatever that is that's trying to find these, it's hidden from that as well. So as much as uh, you know, Darsh picking this up, this is a nice axe. As much as he'd like to wield this thing itself, they agree it's safer to put it down in the chest of holding where it won't be won't be sensed by anything that's going to attract danger to this kingdom or to them as themselves. So they literally do that immediately. They go ahead, they take it down, and they open up the chest of holding, they climb down inside, put it up on one of the shelves inside, because again, when you shrink it, it comes a small box. You can shake it, nothing on the shelves falls off. Inside, it's just super still. They don't, you know, there's no feel of movement. It's a separate pocket. So they have a second artifact. This is their first artifact. The other artifact, which was the dagger, if you remember, is in the chest of holding that Artemis carries in the other group. So now both groups technically have an artifact. Of course, does the other group have another one by now? Who knows? We'll have to see when we get to them. But now we know that at least in the party's possession, there are two between the two groups, which is good because there are a lot of them and they have a long way to go. Now that they've they got that and they put that away... They ask, okay, what is your plan next? This is what Tabork says. What, what is your plan next? And they're like, well, I guess we'll zip the necklace out and see which direction we need to go. Because they've, they've spun it a couple times in the last couple days, and it just points to the, the axe, because the axe is right there. So it's always pointing to the one right here. Now that it's in the chest, where it can't be sensed, they can see which direction they need to travel next. Before they do that, during this time, they've talked to Tabork about Moog. And they're like, do you know of any other gully dwarves in the area? Have you seen any? He's like, no, I'll be honest. They're, they're, I've not seen a gully dwarf since well before the merge. You know, I've run into them back on the old world. We've seen them before. Um, but I've not seen any since. Um, and Fig, while talking with the group, is like, listen, I know it's dangerous for him, but I don't really feel right just leaving him here. He doesn't know anybody. He's scared of Tabork because Tabork's huge. It took him a while to get him used to Darsh. Um, but he's nervous about it. He's like, I I'd like to take him with us. I know it's dangerous, but I'd, I'd like to keep him with us at least until we find a place that I know he's going to be safe. It's a long conversation they've had over the last couple of days as well, but they're like, okay, all right, fine. We'll let him bring. It's your responsibility. But if we can find a safe place for him, we need his people, we need to let him stay there because, you know, we're going to be going into dangerous situations. We definitely don't want to get the boy killed because they've all got a, a fondness for the annoying little gully dwarf. Hey, Jack, Welcome. Yes, we're about an hour and 15 minutes in, but I'm glad that you showed up. Uh, it'll be posted after the video is... Sorry, after the stream is over, I will, uh, I'll be posting this, uh, so you'll be able to go back and watch the stuff that we've already done if you need to. Okay? Um, sorry, it's got a cramp in my jaw. Um, so yeah. So they, uh, they're like, okay, well, that's, that's what we'll do. We'll take him. 
So we're, flash forward back to where we were a moment ago. They decide to spin their necklace. And it points straight down. Which is a little surprising to them. That's odd. Why is it going to be down? Uh, somewhat moot. I'm going to have to play catch-up too. Forgot I'm in a different time zone. No. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but yes, it's... Uh, they're like, okay, we've, we've got to go down? I'm not sure how we're going to pull that off. And Tabork is looking at Michelle, and looking at each other like, okay, well, there may be something we need to show you then. And even Rohan and Smallsius are like, okay, what, what are you talking about? Because they don't even know what he's talking about. So if there's something that uh, we discovered upon returning that we really thought was best to keep quiet, but this is a little too coincidental for us. So I think we, you should all follow us. So they, they're like, okay. So everybody gathers up and they start traveling along and they go through different wanting and they get to an area that Smallsius and them are familiar with. And that's the passageway that leads to the hidden underground room where the mirrors were. If you'll remember the mirrors, that's the, what the, um, back in the day, what Rafe and his brother used to talk to from each other's kingdom. Once a month they could talk through there, even travel through the mirrors at time. But it being cracked and smoldered is how they first knew of the problem and the whole situation with Nihilat to begin with. They go down the stairs, it's winding, it's underground, and when they get there to the mirror, they see that the, the wall where the mirror was, not only is it cracked, but it's actually separated, if you will, like in a jagged crack. And in that is just a hole, like a, almost like a, a very thin, I mean, super thin. I mean, a person could walk through it. Darsh could squeeze through it, though it's not going to be easy. But it's literally going in and almost down. And they're like, we've gone in a little ways. Of course, we're not just going to leave it here. Um, and it just seeds, seems to lead down into the darkness. Um, we've moved everything of value out of this room, so if something does come through, I mean, it's got a small doorway to come out of. And we keep guards at the top, so listening in case something ever came through, but nothing's come out of the hole. And we we're afraid to go. It gets very twisty and turny in there, and with fear of getting lost, we haven't gone too deep ourselves. Lord knows there's just been so much other stuff going on. Who's had the time? The party's like, well, spin their little necklace again, and sure enough, it's shining right through that opening in the, what was the mirror. Now it's just the frame of the mirror on the, stuck to the wall. Because the mirror was a part of the wall. It wasn't just like a mirror sitting in front of the wall or hanging on the wall. It was literally built into the rock. Party's like, okay, well, I guess this is what's going to happen. We're going to have to go into here. They take some time. They go back upstairs. Tabork helps them get all the supplies, give them lots of food. That's one great thing about the chest of holding. We're going down underground. They get multiple barrels of water in there. They got enough water to drink on for months. Tons of food, things like dried meats, cheeses, bread, things that they can have for a long time. A uh, barrel of pickled fish. If you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, in the player's handbook under gear you can buy, there's a barrel of pickled fish. And so I always made sure that the party has a barrel of pickled fish because you never know when you're going to need one. You'd be surprised how often I find a reason for them to need a barrel of pickled fish. Give me one second, I'm going to grab a drink real quick. ibuprofen real quick for my cold here, if you'll give me a second. And I'll keep talking, though. So, yes, with the uh, 
what they're going to do here at this point is to just kind of they get all the supplies because if they're going to be going down into the underground area who knows what's down there and who knows what they'll come across so they're going to need their supplies uh, much better okay so not knowing what else to do time to get a move on they decide to go on down now some of uh like Smallsius and them are like, Sh should we go with them? Do we need to go too? Um, and they're just, barrel to pick fish sounds memeable. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're gonna have fun with. There's gonna be a lot of things you're gonna notice that are very memeable. Um, this is minor, minor sidestep. I have a Tumblr page, and that Tumblr page, all I post. Is Dungeons and Dragons memes and memes and motivational posters. I got thousands up there. I've been doing it for like, God, eight years or more. Um, but when I first started that page, I made my own little, just freight little. It was just different colored things that I called D and Disms, that were just um, little snippets of things like barrel of pickled fish stuff that if you were in the adventure, would make sense to you. And some things would just work if you play D&D. Um, but some of them are specifically for us. So if you're interested in D&D memes, you find that stuff funny, I believe the link to my Tumblr is down in the description of all my other social links in the description of this video. But it's also on my website as well under my social link. Um, if you're interested in... I, I only post them maybe a few times a month. I'll put a few up there, but um, I've got thousands of really funny D&D stuff up there. So something you might be interested in if you like Dungeons & Dragons. Um, but yeah, so they're like... It's, just, it's decided that no... Going into the underground as it is, I mean, Darsh is already going to have a hard time down here. And who knows if they're even going to be able to, how far they're going to be able to travel. We may just have to come back. Um, but their quest to find Rafe needs to continue. Um, and they're going to go back out. Um, hopefully catch up with Thickaway. Maybe Thickaway's got some news for them. Go and take care of those things if they can. Um, and then deal with that. So our group is back to just five people now. Which is our original group of Willow, Darsh, Fig, Mercy, and Moog. Because Moog is going with them. Now, Moog, luckily, Infravision. In fact, everybody in the party has Infravision, except Mercy. That's a problem. Because they're about to go down into the underground, or depending on your Dungeons & Dragons history, the Underdark. And it is just pitch black down there. All the time. And you can only carry so many torches. They can carry a lot. they got a chest to hold it. But that's definitely going to be a challenge for them because if something happens and she gets lost in the darkness, that's a problem. So Mercy's a little nervous about that. She's never. This is a situation she's never been in. She's never had to deal with. She's never been trained for. I mean, she can blind fight. She can fight in relative darkness, but to literally try to survive in it would be damn near impossible. At least, you know, right away. Take a long time to learn. But... What else can you do? Luckily, everybody else in the party has improvisions, so they can carry a torch, but at times, if they need to, they could just kind of lead her by hand, if that was the case. So they proceed to go into the underground and start going south, or down, technically. Um, I really, really uh, enjoy this part of it. The Underdark isn't something that I get to use a lot. Uh, uh, there's about to be a lot of spiders... Neon, you're a very knowledgeable person about D&D, it would seem. Most excellent. So, they decide to uh, get going, and, and they travel. And when I say they travel, time has basically no 
no meaning in the underground or in the underdark, however you want to call it. Underdark terminology is technically Forgotten Realms world of Dungeons Dragons, but it, it fits with everything. So I'm just going to call it the underdark. If I'm referencing it, I mean basically underground. But the underdark is a very harsh and unforgiving place, and time has no meaning. There's no day, there's no night, it's just always dark. And a lot of times, it's just dead silent. You just hear you walking and creaking and your foot stumbling and such. Um, and it can be very isolating and very nerve-wracking, mess with your psyche. And then you come across times where you come across rivers underground or waterfalls. I mean, you can find giant caverns with weird mushrooms and things growing in them. I mean, there's they'll come across the occasional creature. Even in the darkness, most of the creatures you find down here are blind or, or have, use other type of senses. Um, but it's very, uh, very unforgiving place. Uh, fortunately, temperature-wise, that's the one thing that's not super harsh. Not a lot of hot... It's, it's usually on the chill side, but there's not a lot of hot or cold. You may occasionally come across a river of lava, and it'd be hot there, obviously. You may come to an area that's all frozen. But for the most part, majority of it is just a bit on the chill side, almost like just being in a damp cave. So they travel for, to them, feels like weeks. They come to a lot of different branches. Um, sometimes they go back, climbing back up, sometimes they're down. Sometimes they're having to climb down rock faces, uh, cliffs. It could be, sometimes they see cliffs that appear to be bottomless pits, having to go around them. There's a few times they've had to go through water, which has been some of the worst times for Mercy, because a lot of those situations, um, you know, there's only like this much space between the water and the ceiling, and they're making their way through. You don't have no infravision, and your torch is not going to stay lit in that situation. So she's just holding on to her friends in a river with a current in the darkness with that much air. Um, that would freak out a lot of people. If you didn't have claustrophobia, you might have it by the time you leave here. But they travel for what to them feels like weeks. Now, it's, like I said, depressing. It's isolationist. A lot of times they're just traveling in, in silence. And it just weighs on everybody except Moog, who's just having a damn fine time. Moog is having a blast. He's getting to hang out with everybody. When they go through places like water, people are giving him piggyback rides, usually Darsh, because sometimes Fig has to get a piggyback ride, because he's also sure. Um, you know, Willow's always nice to him, because Willow's nice to everybody. Um, he's just, these are a group of people that are treating him nice. Gellidors don't normally get that, and they're taking him with them. He has no sense of there being any form of danger. He's just traveling with Figgy and his friends and doing what's going on. But they're uh, they're traveling for a very long time, and every so often they get to like an intersection or something. they got to figure out which way they're going to go. Pop out the necklace and spin it again. It's almost always pointing a, a specific direction. So through this, they come to the understanding that the necklace is not always pointing in the exact direct direction of the artifact, but in fact the path they the path or road or direction they would need to take to get to it. So when it was pointing down in the castle back before, it was only pointing down to the the entrance underground of where that crack was. Um, and thick, or, uh, Tabork picked up on that very quickly. He knows the whole layout of the castle. He knew exactly where that thing was pointing. Um, but you know, an intersection sometimes it's pointing right. Next time they point left down, but it's leading them on a specific path. So they don't know if that's how the magic's supposed to work. Is something guiding it? Maybe it's Zoltan? They haven't heard a word from him since he put him on this quest. Um, that is a uh, that is a lot a, a lot of things. Is, is this a smart? Is it intelligent? It's not talking to them. Some magic items are like that. You know. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, the sense of foreboding is tactile. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but they, they, they travel for quite a ways. And 
eventually they come across what appears to be the first sign of some type of intelligent life. And they find tunnels that are clearly, we'll say man-made, but made by something intelligent. Um, Fig being very well knowledgeable of being underground, because he lived under mountains for a long time. He goes years without going to the sunlight. He's the most comfortable in here completely. Um, Darsh is the least comfortable because, or, because there's times he's having to crawl on his hands and knees to go where everybody else is walking straight up. He's His knees are rubbed raw. He's cuts all over him and such. Irritating for Darsh. But figs like these are tool marks. Picks and axes were used to mine these tunnels. Um, he's, he has dwarven knowledge of that. He's not saying dwarves did it, but he knows enough to say this is tools. This wasn't something clawing or scratching or anything like that. And they're like, okay. So now they're having to travel a bit more cautiously. Something else is down here. Is it good? Is it bad? We don't know. But it's definitely not something we just want to stumble into without being knowledgeable. So it's at this point that Willow is actually having to do the a very unwillow-like thing. She's having to work as their point. Um, her infravision is by far better than anybody else's in the party. And her hearing is also way better than anyone else's. So there are times that she's having to very quietly travel ahead of the group. She's small, she's light, she doesn't make a lot of noise. Um, Elven walking itself cannot leave tracks. And someone like her who's raised in the woods, it's a little different underground, but she's still very good at not leaving any type of tracks or making sounds as she moves. Sorry, itchy nose. Um, so as they're traveling, she sometimes has to go ahead of them outside of the torchlight. Because when the torch is on, your infravision does not work. You have to be in darkness for infravision to work. Um, so with the torch, you know, for Mercy, her, she's almost always got a torch on her because she does not like the dark down here. Artemis sometimes has to go ways ahead. And it's on one of these little forays ahead, if you will, uh, well ahead of everybody, that she comes across sounds in the distance. Now, her first instinct was to go back and tell everybody, but at the same time, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be courageous here. It's my job to find out what's going on. I better take a look. So being as sneaky-sneaky as she possibly can be, she makes her way forward, um, and she sees as she, she's, she's kind of crawling ahead. There's, it goes up a little bit. She's looking over a lip down at a cavern, and looking down into the cavern, she can see a bunch of little dudes mining. There's some mine carts down there. They're pushing it on tracks, but there's like carts, like wheelbarrows, and they're mining what appears to be some type of ore out of the rock. Um, she's not familiar with exactly what they are, but they look a lot like dwarves. She said, okay, I see what they are. I better go back and tell everybody. Sneaky as quickly as she can, she goes back and catches back up at the party. She describes what they've seen. They're dwarves, but their skin is a little bit more on a grayish color. Um... Almost like a, not black, but like a, like a gray color, almost a sooty kind of thing. Um, and all their hair was black or gray. And it sounds to the party, especially to Fig, who's slightly, you know, that these are dark dwarves, they're underground dwarves, and they are not pleasant people. They definitely don't like outsiders. So they need to figure out a way, because when they spin their necklace again, of course it points right at that cavern. As it should, right? Because that's just the way luck works for these guys. So, like, okay, we need to somehow get past that. And what's on the other side of that? Mm, is there a whole country of dwarves? I mean, what? what how, how do these guys live? Fig goes, well, they usually live in 
you know, large underground city groups, there could be a whole city over there. We may have to try to find a way of going around it. You know, the necklace is pointing straight to that cavern. I mean, there's, she saw at least 30 or 40 of them in there. There's no way we're going to be able to take them all out. That is correct. Durger, or Duger, how do you pronounce it? I'd be interested. Somewhat Moon is 100% correct. That is the name of the type of dwarves. We usually call them the Dwarger, but I, I'd be interested to see how everybody else thinks that's pronounced. Underground dwarves. Ouch. Okay. All right. So they're being extra careful. They're like, okay, we need to try and go around them. <laughs> there we go. So they're like, they're trying to go around. Now, I'm just going to kind of give a brief overview of this because during this adventure with the dwarves, they never come into direct contact with them. This becomes a very willow section of the story. Um, up until this point, the person who was playing Willow really was the one character who hadn't come out of their shell, if you will. Um, didn't have, and I wanted to give that character a chance to actually do some stuff. So, her being the quietest, the best vision, best hearing, it's determined at several locations that when they find that they literally are going to have to kind of travel through a bunch of cave systems that have small what you could almost call towns, if you will. Imagine pock caves carved out with little groups of housings in them. So really clans and such, if you will. Um, and having to travel through those and through the tunnels that connect them without actually going through them. Um, it's determined that their best bet to get through there is that not be five people trying to get through because Moog couldn't be quiet if you asked him to. If you knocked him unconscious, he would probably snore. And he does snore, by the way. That's an issue that they run into. Um, this is not going to be an easy trek for them or Darsh. I mean, who's going to not notice Darsh? He's black. He's a black minotaur. But these things all have imprevision. Color means nothing to these things. If the dwarves see you, they're going to see your outline, your shape. They're going to pick up someone big like Darsh. So what is determined is that everybody except Willow is going to get inside the chest of holding. She's going to shrink it. And then she's going to do her best to sneak through. And that's what they came up with, the party. Which is intriguing to me, because I wasn't sure how they were going to do it, to be honest. I had gave several different scenarios that might enable them to get through. But they came up with that idea, which I thought was really, really courageous. Because if something happens and she gets caught, and they don't know the command word, she doesn't tell the command word to anybody, and that thing only has so much oxygen in it. If they does not get out in a certain period of time, they will suffocate inside of that room. So it became a, a, a timed thing. And I actually had an egg timer. And every so often, she would have to find a way to open up the chest to give them a, a scenario of what's going on and to get let it fill back up with air. Because I did kind of, if you had it open for 60 seconds, it filled up with air. They would just suck back in it again. How are you going to measure that? So I, get, I said, have it open 60 seconds. It's a big chest. It's a big opening. The air fills up pretty quickly. Um, so that over 60 seconds, it refills, and that bought them, I wanted to say it was an hour's worth of time. To, I, we calculated based on the amount of people that were in there. So I want to say she had like 35 or 40 minutes per time before they'd run out of air. She really needed to try to open up a little bit before that, 25, 30 minutes. So that meant she kept having to find spaces that she could safely make a chest grow, open it up for 60 seconds, close it, shrink it down, and keep going. Um while trying to be sneaky, quiet, and unseen by a bunch of creatures that live here normally. And it was a really good challenge for her, and she did a very good job with it. Um, at one point, literally sneaking into someone's house and going into their closet and opening the chest in their closet. Um, 
while they were out there eating dinner, and then she had to wait for them to leave. She sat there for like an hour and then got sneaked back out. It was she. She did a very good job of, and it really kind of gave Willow a chance to to be a bit more courageous um, and let her character grow. Um, to find out that she isn't always the person who has to be protected. And that was the lesson that we really learned from all of them in that situation, is that A, they had to learn to trust Willow on her own a little bit more, because they've all been, always been protective of her. But B, she had to learn that faith in herself, and that there are times that she may have to do the heavy lifting, uh, and that there are people depending on her. I mean, she lived, like, she's, she's an elf. She was, I want to say, close to 200 years old when the merge happened. And the majority of her life, she spent alone in the woods not dealing with anybody else. Um, occasionally coming across another druid or elf, but really just living with nature, which is what, you know, the kind of life she leads. So now she's having to actually not only depend on other people, but people depending on her. Um, and it gave her an opportunity to, to really have some character growth and, and to make her a little bit more courageous. Because even in combat situations, she'd be in the back. I'm like, okay, it's been three rounds of combat. You haven't done anything yet. Well, I'm afraid of casting a spell. You know, Now she's a little bit more, okay, I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to do this. Or you're in melee combat. I'm going to spells. I got a quarter staff. I'm going to bonk somebody. Um, or at least I'm going to try to protect Moog from this thing that's attacking. And it really caused her to gain some more self-confidence um, and really take a bit more of an active role in the party, uh, which, was, which was very cool. Because there's nothing worse than when you have a character in D&D where they're literally just the first aid kit. Like they're a cleric, they only, they're just there to cast a healing spell, and then you don't hear from them the rest of the time. Um, it's important to me that when I'm playing Dungeons & Dragons that your characters are alive for you, um, that you're very well um, deep in, into their lore. I want them to have backstory. I want, like I I like them to have phobias, uh, have certain things, favorite foods. I want you to have those kind of things. Um, you have certain tricks about you. This is a character that doesn't like having anybody sit behind him, so he always sits in the corner. Uh, this person doesn't like is always cold, so they're always trying to sit closer to the fire. Little things about that. If you came, hey, I would like to add this. This person has this twitch or this characteristic. I'm like, sweet, add it in there. As long as it doesn't mess up something previous, why not bring more depth to your character? So I learned a lot about these guys, and they learned a lot about their own characters by being put into these situations where everybody had to kind of jump up and do the heavy lifting in that part of the story. And you're going to see a lot of times in my story where somebody has to take that role, and sometimes that's because I felt that character's fading a little bit too much into the background. And I want them to have a chance to shine. Uh, so, yeah. It's always good for the story. So she manages to successfully make it through the Dark Dwarves' kingdom, if you will, even though it takes her about a day and a half to get through it all. With the sneaking and catching a rest in a closet at one point, um, there was also a part where there was like a multiple mine carts, kind of like in Indiana Jones, and she was on one of those and because they were just going automatically with oars, and she had to hop in one to get through this one section. It was, a, it was, it was kind of fun, but she was little just zooming in on this cart, not knowing where it's going. Um, but I, I, it, was, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting part of the story. But I'm kind of breezing over it because it was mostly like, I want to sneak here, I want to sneak that. There wasn't really any combat or big story parts. But I did want to kind of give a little bit of how important that little segment was to that character's development specifically. Okay? Um, but they managed to make it through. It took like a day and a half to get through. And then um, they managed to make it. They get a good ways away from the Dark Dwarves before they decide to spend one day just resting because Willow's a little... Nerves are a little shot from everything she went through. She needs time to recoup. Um, and then they decide it's time for them to continue traveling on. Um, so as they're traveling and they're moving along, <laughs> I, I love it because Neon already called it out. There's another race that lives underground that's very common in Dungeons and & Dragons. 
And this is a race that is totally not good, guys. And that is called the Drow. And the Drow, the Drow, depending on how you know, I say Drow, some people say Drow, they're allowed to be wrong. But Drow Elves are a form of elves that live purely underground. Uh, very onyx, ebony skin. Very dark skin, usually white hair or black hair. Um, spend their entire life living in darkness. Unless you're a wizard who actually needs to write something by candlelight, they pretty much all live in just pure darkness. They have the best information of pretty much any race in existence. Um, and they are just pricks. They worship an evil goddess normally. Although I have to say, because this is my world with my own pantheon of gods, they don't worship the one that they do in the other D&D stuff. They worship a specific god. And let me grab it so I can make sure I give you the right name here. Right up on. I'm writing in my book. That's not the right book. Alright. I'll find it later. So anyways. Ah, here it is. This isn't a god I get to mention as much as often. So let me grab it here. And it was... Yes, okay. So it's Elizon. And Elizon is the god of, god of darkness. They live for the darkness. Um, if they could snuff out the sun, they'd do that. Let everybody be in darkness. But they worship the god of darkness himself. Um, now, in traditional Dungeons & Dragons, if you're especially like in the Forgotten Realms settings, they worship a goddess named Loth, who's the spider goddess. Uh, so spiders are big. And I, I kept that part of the drow. Um, and somebody, Neon uh, made a reference about spiders earlier. Uh, but drow do have giant spiders, little spiders, pet spiders. Spiders are uh, a really big part of their world, even though they're not worshipping a spider goddess. Now, it was very important to me that I kept spiders as part of the drow on my world, because spiders is Darsh's phobia. And I'd been planning that for a while. I make you pick a phobia, but I'm going to find a way to use it against you. I mean, to develop the story. So, uh, yes, Darsh's phobia, because they all chose their phobias at the beginning, and I also had a chart where if you didn't want to pick one, I had a chart of 100 different phobias. You could roll percentage dice, and you could have the phobia that's on there. Um, but a lot of times, they would find a... Uh, for moss, use moth balls. For spiders, use moth balls. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but a lot of times, they would try to develop... Uh, phobia. I would challenge them to, to work that into their, their character's backstory. Like Willow's backstory, she's a druid who spent her whole life living in the forest. She was very uncomfortable in cities and large groups of people. Another challenge of the Dark Dwarf part is having to travel through things like that. That was something that that player came up with for the character as part of their history. And part of why she became a druid is because growing up with elves, even around other elves, she was uncomfortable in groups. So that's what caused her to find search out solitude and led her towards being a druid. Um, Darsh didn't want to pick one, so we rolled the chart and he got spiders. And man, did that make me happy. Um, so the party traveling through comes across a drow kingdom-ish Odd thing, I say kingdom-ish because not all of the Drow Kingdom came through the merge, but a large section of it did. And they, sneaking up, and they very easily see that as they're approaching, because they don't know it's Drow at first, they come across some actual Drow guards or, or scouts, if you will, um, and purely by accident. They were literally camping and resting and 
they happened to come by, and again, Willow happened to pick them up with her improvision. Nobody else did. But she very quickly, all elves know about the other elves. She knew what Drow were, and immediately was like, this is a problem. Uh, she goes, because I'm sneaky, but I'm not that sneaky. There's no way I'm going to get through a Drow kingdom the same way. I don't care where the necklace is pointing, we need to go around. And they're like, okay, well, some of them knew about Drow, some of them did not, but just hearing what Willow knew, they're like, okay, well, that sounds bad. We just obviously don't need to mess with these guys. She doesn't mention anything about the spiders, so at this point, Darcy isn't nervous yet. They're like, this is where we, this is how it works. And like, well, let's check the necklace just to be sure. And they spin the necklace, and it points directly at, at the Drow City. And they're like, well, what we may need may be on the other side of that Drow City, then. We're still going to go around. We'll try again when we get to the other side. Because hopefully if we can bypass this, it'll be way safer. It takes them a couple of days of being extra cautious and going very wide. Because, you know, you travel wide and all of a sudden the tunnel you're in dead ends or goes the wrong way. They're having to go up and down and they're having to find a path that leads them around without getting too close, without getting lost. Um, and it takes them a good couple days to get around this. Now, the size of this city itself Let's just say that it's not huge. It's no bigger than, say, six football fields, which sounds large, but really that's a town, if you think about it. Um, and there's some very large buildings in there. Um, it takes a while still to maneuver around and find the right tunnel and still avoiding guards and all that kind of stuff and scouts. Um, but they feel pretty confident that they've done that. And they get around and they flip their necklace. It points right back at the city, the direction they came from. Now they're in a conundrum. It can't be that it's asking them to go around. That means the artifact is inside this drow city. That is a huge problem. Because A, they can't just go marching in there. But B, they have to somehow go marching in there. And so they're like, okay, we need a plan. And they're like, we're going to spend some time watching. See if we can find an entrance. So... They get as close to the city as they feel comfortable. They find a hidden cave or an outcropping at some point, and, and they do the Willow chest of holding thing, where Willow sneaks up there, because Darsh obviously is, doesn't do a lot of climbing. He's actually not bad at climbing, because again, Minotaurs, many of them raised on the sea, he spent years on ships, so climbing up and down riggings. He's, he's a man of the ocean. He's a Minotaur, but he's a Minotaur of the water. Uh, so climbing's not a big problem for him. Another reason why I like them to have feet. Climbing with hooves is way harder. That's just a fact. I trust me, I know. Um, but they're watching from their little cave outcropping, and they're watching the comings and goings. And they do that for a couple of days. They're not in a rush. They know this is dangerous. So for a couple of days, they're watching the comings and goings, and they see that a certain time every day, approximate day, the drow march out a group of different humanoids, which they use then to take care of different things mining, gathering of mushrooms or whatever. There's a cave full of mushrooms nearby, if I remember correctly. And they use them for gathering these things, and they're clearly enslaved races. And it's a group of mixed races. Um, all of them being things like dark dwarves, underground gnomes. Uh, there's even a couple minotaurs in there. Uh, things that have infravision, or that could be captured. There's no humans or things without infravision, because they just wouldn't last. And drow are not going to waste magic on humans. They'll just kill them. Drow are not wasteful people. 
They'll just kill them, get rid of them, and they'll keep things. There's some goblins in there, hobgoblins, so on and so forth. Um, but in the group, there's a couple of minotaurs, and they get to thinking about it. One of the minotaurs, while being a darker color, at least as far as they can tell, because again, they're looking through information. Mercy can see nothing. There's no torches. This is the hardest part in the whole adventure for Mercy at this point. Because literally for a couple of days she has to sit there in complete darkness because they cannot whip out a torch this close to the city. And keeping Moog quiet, a lot of times they keep him in the chest of holding. And Mercy will spend some time down in there as well because she can light a torch in there. Not for long because it burns oxygen quicker. And that's something that we had to calculate. But if they have torches inside, that's a problem. Uh, so they, she can sit in there for a little while, have a candle or match or something, so she can at least see a little bit of light. Um, and then sometimes during the nighttime, she would sleep down in there in a corner with a light. They would leave the chest open and then just covered with a towel or blanket, not a towel, but a blanket, so that light wasn't coming out. They're doing everything they can so that she can have at least a little peace of mind, uh, because it does wear on her the hardest out of everybody. But they realize that there's some minotaurs. It's what if it was possible that Darsh was to trade places with one? Um, it adds its own challenges. A, how do I trade places with a minotaur? These things aren't stupid. They're going to notice there's an extra minotaur. It's not like an extra goblin if there's like 20 of them now there's 21. There are like three or four minotaurs and now there's an extra one. You're going to notice that. Plus, Darsh obviously can't take any of his weapons or armor. So he takes any of his weapons or armor with him. He, they're, not, they're not armed. They're, pretty much most of these things are naked. Maybe just wearing tatters of cloth tied around them, loincloths or whatever. It's not super cold here, like I mentioned before. Um, so they're not, they don't need a lot of clothes. So they definitely don't have gear on, rough sandals that allow them to move as much as they can. Um, but Darsh is like, okay, well, tomorrow when they come in, we'll try to go do that. He goes, but do I sneak in the chest of holding with everybody in it? Because I'm basically in a group of slaves at this point. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out or not. I can try to escape the next day when we're brought back out to do whatever, but I don't know how well that'll be. If you guys get I get frisked or something and they take the chest holding, I don't want you guys screwed. So they realize Darsh should go in alone. Now at this point, they still haven't seen any spiders. I've been saving that. We're getting there. I know you're excited. Um, but Darsh like, I'm going to go in solo. I think that's the best thing that we can do. Like, okay, we're not happy about it, but we understand it. We agree that's probably the best thing. We'll stay out here with the chest of holding. Worst comes down to it, we could maybe hide the chest of holding where you guys are farming the next day. You can go there, get it, and sneak us in. Everybody but somebody. Someone would have to stay out, but at least you could sneak some of us in. So they work on that as a plan. They're like, okay, cool. The next day, I'll give a sign. Like, I'll rub my horn or something like that, you know, and pick my nose, whatever. I'll do something, and if I do that, you'll know that you need to hide the chest the next day so I can get it. I'll sneak you in. If I don't do that, that means it's not safe. Do not come closer. Whatever. We'll figure something out. So, Darsh does that. Basically takes off all of his clothes. They find some rags of cloth or some, some old cloth. They, you know, they got a chest of holding. They got a whole ton of stuff in there. They got a, some old blankets and such, and they dirty him up and rip him up a bit, and he wraps them around himself to try to be as, uh, you know, as dusty looking as possible. He already does not look as skinny and weak as these ones. He definitely looks a little more muscular, so he's already a little nervous about that. Um, but he decides he's going to go barefooted and act like he lost his sandals or whatever. He definitely can't walk in there with his schnazzy boots on and he doesn't have any crappy sandals to put on. Who has time to make crappy sandals in the middle of the adventure? So he does the best he can with some dirt on himself, you know, because luckily they're all in so no one can see his color. They're just going to see his shape. 
That's one perk they have it going for them in this situation is InfraVision does not really show color. So they go ahead and he, the next day he's hiding in the, because they watch the Minotaurs and they're in the gathering the mushrooms or whatever and the, the cavern has no other way out. So the drow don't have to go into the cavern. They just kind of hang out. They're like, you go in there and get mushrooms and then you bring them back out or we'll come in and kill you. We're drow. That's how we roll. And so let's see how Darsh hides inside and then when one of the minotaurs comes bumbling along at one point, um, he basically has a rock, cocks him over the back of the head. The minotaurs themselves, not obviously being fed super well, not a lot of strength in them as, as they are. This one has been in captivity or enslaved for a very long time, so at this point it's just a husk of a living thing. Pops it over the head, definitely didn't have any of his minotaur fighting instincts, knocks it unconscious. The drow are like, hear a little something, looking at what's going on, and immediately Darsh's grabs the basket the guy had and is just snapping these big mushrooms off and starts throwing them inside. And after a minute, the drow are like, okay, and get back to their chatting or rolling dice or whatever they want. These are low-level drow. This is a crappy job to have, so they're clearly not super important or super. Um, they're the lower of nobility or whatever to have a job like you guard the minotaur while they gather mushrooms. Darsh then, the end of the day, once his mushrooms are full, sneaks in with everybody else, does his best to you know, walk slow and like he has no hope and, you know, he's trying to mirror everyone else and uh, the other mentors and such are looking at him a little odd, like, we don't know who you are, but we don't we don't talk to the drow or they'll beat us, so we're just going to shut up. But even the other goblins and such and everybody in the group are looking at him a little odd because he's definitely they they see each other more often than even the drow. To the drow, they're all slaves. It's filth. You know, lesser beings. The goblins and the minotaurs and things that have to live together, they're like, okay, I don't know you, but um, you're still bigger than me, so I'm not going to mess with you. Um, so he gets led along, and they get chained up, by the way. They chain up their hands you know, after they leave the cave, because the last thing they want is a bunch of slaves to try to make a break for it. Uh, so they have their hands and feet chained. Darsh is bumbling along with everybody else. And he gets led in to this drow city, and the drow city itself... Like I said, it's more like a town size. It's really just one compound. There were multiple drought compounds originally, but this is the only one that came through, at least to this area. Um, he doesn't speak drow, so he's just more trying to listen, and he gets led into basically this outdoor pen where there's just rags and blankets and hay, and you can tell this is where the slaves sleep. Food is really literally thrown into like a slop bucket thing, and they get scoop out this gruelly stew stuff that they're fed. Not a lot. Um, but they just kind of hang out there. The biggest thing that Darsh runs into is that this entire compound, the walls and in the windows, is just crawling with spiders of different sizes. From tarantulas to, like, a kind you could ride on, there are some big spiders. Darsh did not know this until he got in there, and he's like, why do the walls look like they're moving? And then uh, he looks down, and there's a spider, and he's about to step on it when, when even a goblin's like, whoa don't do that. They'll come in here and kill all of us. We get caught killing a spider. If it bites you, you just deal with it. And he's like, are you serious? And they're like, yes. These spiders are like, they're holy symbols. They're creatures of the darkness. They're beloved. Do not mess with the spiders. It's not that I like you. I just don't want to be punished too. And it's speaking very broken common. I'm speaking way more eloquently than the goblin. You know squish. You squish, we all die. You know. Don't do that. Um, and if I remember correctly, Darsh spoke common minotaur and goblin. Those are the three languages that he knew how to speak. So in this situation, that actually ended up being helpful. He was able to speak a bit in goblin. He learns, you know, because what else do they do? They just sit there. They're given dice 
dominoes, a few things. Because the Jar aren't stupid. You gotta give me something. It's just like with regular people. You gotta give me something to occupy you when you're here, or else you're gonna not have any reason, and then you're just gonna revolt and we're gonna have to kill you anyways. So we give you something. We give you enough to get by. Um, and Darsh finds out that for a lot of the times they're also used as slaves around the place, building things, used for guard duty. The Minotaurs very often are used as guards inside. They may even be given weapons because they've they've learned over the years of being enslaved that if they try to use those weapons for anything else, they will be horrendously punished. And sometimes not even killed. Killed would have been nice. Drow are known for their ability to torture. So Darsh is like, okay, um... That could work out. How do they choose? They go, usually they just point at a couple and that's who goes. So Darsh is like, okay, I really want to go back out and let them know tomorrow, but if I could be near where they come in and I could be the first one they see, maybe I could be put on guard duty. Maybe I look around for artifact weapon. He's kicking himself at this point. And I remember this because he's like, I should have brought the damn necklace. If I'd had the necklace, I'd have a bit better idea of where I was going. But he did not bring the necklace. They chose poorly. So while this is going on, the rest of them are having a little bit of a problem of their own. Darsh is taken off. He leaves. They return back to the little cabin place or the little place that they were staying because they were watching Darsh from another spot. And their stuff is there. Moog is not. Every other time they told Moog, you stay here, Moog stayed there. They gave him something shiny to play with. They let him hang out in the chest of holding. He did that. He just sat there and waited for Figgy to come back. He's learned not to yell Haya Bonk. Even though he wants to practice. He mouths it sometimes. He's pretending to bonk things. But they've taught him not to smack the walls because it makes noise. Drow will find it. Even, even he knows Drow are not to be played with. But they come back and he is missing. Now none of their other stuff is gone. Nothing's been ransacked. The chest of holding is still sitting there. They can only assume that somehow he's wandered off. They are now in a problem. We have to find Moog. We can't just abandon him down here. Fig is especially saying, we cannot abandon him down here. We have to find him. And the only place he could have gone is into the Drow compound, into the Drow city. And they determined, we can't wait on Darsh. We have to find a way back inside and save Moog. And that is, I think, where we're going to call it a day. It's been about two hours, and I try to keep these right around the two-hour mark. Um, I know it's a lot to watch, and I know some people go back and watch them. Didn't get to be here for the stream, and I try not to kill you with too much time. Um, but I, this is a good stopping point, because we're about to jump into something a, a little bit more adventurous that I'm kind of excited about. Uh, it was a part that I actually had forgotten about until this morning when I was actually going over it. I'd forgotten completely about this. Um, and it's going to sound... I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer here. There are times in the adventure, because I have so many female characters, that it would seem that I'm picking on them for being female. I want to clarify that's not the case. I preferred the female characters to any other group I've particularly had, and my whole group was mostly females at this point, and they are phenomenal role players as a whole. I just find the, 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 everybody's a great role player in different ways, but the, the, this group specifically that I had of all the groups, um, there were uh, a couple of the gr girls were just, they got so invested in the story and their characters that, for like me, it became a big part of their life for a very long time. Um, 
and there are times when it's going to seem that some of the characters are going to be really sexist and misogynistic or think that the because they're a female character they're going to they're not to be respected or whatever i did that on purpose because there's so much of that i wanted to show what happens when you treat someone like that who is more than capable of whooping your ass I wanted to show that. And so there are going to be situations where it appears some, I'm, I'm leading, I may be doing something bad to them just because they're female. I promise that by the time we um, execute on that story segment, you're going to see why I did that. So um, this is something I've, I've had to explain before because I've had people I've been telling the story to and they'll be like, you know, it kind of seems like you're hitting hard on the female characters more than the male. I'm like, trust me, in the end, it all makes sense. Um, but this group has, um, Artem, or, ugh, has Willow and Mercy. Um, and in this next little section that we're going to get to next week, or the two weeks from now, um, we're gonna, it's going to be a really big chance of them. They're going to get involved in something uh, very interesting. So, um, and technically, when I played this, I brought in a character from regular D&D lore. I'm not going to use that character here, because in the telling of the stories, I've removed what few ca characters I've pulled out of Dragonlance or Forgotten Realms or Dark Sun, um, because... Obviously, I can't use somebody else's stuff. Um, but we're going to have a character that's going to... If you know anything about Drow stories and Forgotten Realms, you're going to know who this character is based off of. Very easily. Um, but um, this is a really good stopping point, so we're leaving it out here. Darsh is in the Drow Slave Compound. Uh, Fig and friends are trying to figure out a way to sneak in because Moog is somewhere in there too, and they don't know how or why he's in there or how they're going to get him back. Um, and then, of course... We will very likely, after we resolve this drow section, we will then, probably during next stream, we'll be switching over to the other group. We're not going to finish all of this, because this is, at this point, it's been, when they went underground, it had been a little over two weeks since they left the other group. They've been underground now for almost six weeks by the time they reached the drow. And that's something I didn't think I did a very good job of explaining the timelines. They're, they don't know day or night, but they've actually been underground for over six weeks at this point. And they brought a lot of supplies, and they've been stingy with it, but even then, they're seeing situations where sometimes their food sources are dropping. So, luckily, they do occasionally come across water. They can refill their barrels, so water they're good on. Um, but food is a bit of a concern and something that they're, they're being extra cautious about. Um, and we'll address that a little bit more in the next uh, section. But um, I would like to say, did anybody have any questions... Um, or comments about any of the stuff that I've covered in the stream today. Anything about the races, the classes, the characters, anything from the scenarios, anything you'd like me to explain more on. Uh, definitely give you guys a couple minutes to throw questions at me if you have any. Um, or again, if you're, if you're watching this video later, if you're not watching it live on stream, please throw your questions uh, down in the comment section of the stream. I'm going to post this up pretty much immediately after it's done. Um, and I would be very happy to come back and answer any questions that you have. Um, if you've enjoyed the stream, you like it, definitely please feel free to hit the like button. Uh, but most importantly, if you're new here, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, that way you can see all my videos, tutorials, and streams as they come out. Uh, you can also go to my website, onlydraven.com, uh, where you can find uh, the photographs of actors, actresses, and things that I use to show these characters, like the ones I had pop up on stream today. Uh, if you're listening to this, I've, I've actually been told there's some people who listen to this... Um, well, like driving and such, more of an audio podcast, which is pretty cool. I hadn't really considered that. If you're listening to this, you're not getting to see the pictures. If you go to OnlyDraven.com, at the very top, there are links of different pages, and one of them is named Characters. If you go there, you'll find photographs or drawings 
uh, that I've taken from the internet to represent the characters that we're using. So that way, what you see when I'm talking about them is the same thing that I see when I'm talking about them. Just makes it a little bit easier for us all to share the same picture. Ah, Neon says, Did the light from the necklace make the very dark underground area around the Drow City bright enough for the Drow to notice the group? It did not. I liken it very much like a laser pointer. You know, if you use a laser pointer, there'll be a little bit of a glow off of it, um, but it's more just a straight line. It doesn't work quite like a flashlight. And that's how thin it is. It's literally just a thin, like a laser pointer line. It's not like a big thing. It's, it's The necklace itself is this, and when you, when, you, when you flick it or spin it, it just kind of shines out from the center of it like a laser pointer. Um, but it doesn't really glow. Now, again, if they were to pop that out and something was in line of seeing that, they may see the red line. It wouldn't be light, but they may see a red line shoot through. At this point, they don't believe anyone has seen it. Because no one's obviously come up and captured them. And if there's a bunch of people hanging out right next to a Drow castle or Drow house, Drow are normally going to go and take care of that. But the fact that Moog is gone is also another concern. Did Moog get taken by someone? If they did, why didn't they walk off with this magic stuff? This chest is very magical. If a wizard or cleric did detect magic on this chest, it would be very magical. It is very, and, and that happens. The detect magic spell will make something glow, and the level of its glow kind of denotes how powerful of magic it is. Now, there's some really powerful stuff that will only glow a little bit, especially when you get to artifacts and things. Um, and that's, that's an interesting thing about the god artifacts. They don't glow at all when you detect magic. Not even a little bit. They give nothing at all. Um, and there's some things that will glow really bright, but they're really, really weak. And those are meant more of like trap items to... A lot of times if you have a wizard or somebody has a treasure hoard, they'll put a fake item like that in with it so that if somebody's in there stealing stuff, they'll take that because it appears to be the most magical item when really its only purpose is to glow and to attract magic from detect magic. Uh, says, okay, cool. was wondering if it is visible outside in the day would mean it would be as bright in the underground. I suppose it's relative. And this is very true. It's just like using a laser pointer. The brighter it is the less distance you're going to be able to see it. Because for all intents and purposes, it doesn't have an end. Like, if I'm, I'm, a, I'm on one side of the city and I shine it, it could be going miles until it hits something. But if it's bright outside, because of just light in general and glow, you just don't see it as far off in the distance. Um, which, and I kind of basically, like on a laser pointer. Um, that's the, I had one when I was actually doing this part of the story, and I kept shining it in the player's eyes, because again... I'm also a jerk, but I like to mess with them when we're playing. If they're taking too long to make a decision, I'd, I'd flash them with it. Um, but yeah, so outside, again, you you won't see, you can see the direction, but you don't go far. Underground, definitely, it goes until it hits something or it's out of your line of sight. So it definitely could be way more noticeable in that regard, but it wouldn't be like a bright, shining light that would you'd see their faces reflecting in it or anything like that. It's just way too in, intense of a solid line. So I don't know if it's even really light as much as it is magic. I never really got to the point where I had to determine that. Um, I assume it's a magic light. So it, it's got special rules. <laughs> um, but yes, yes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be kind of exciting to jump into the next one. Um, again, I thank everybody who came by and watched the stream today or is watching it later on. If you're watching it, definitely please throw some feedback down there. If there's things you like, things you don't like, you'd like me to have more pictures. You'd like me to go into more detail about things like the combat and such. Um, I know I've reminded you guys of this times before, but this part of the story right now I'm doing purely off of memory. We're not to the part where I actually got to start chronicling it because I lost a lot of stuff due to a flood uh, or flooding of a basement. Um, but we are getting closer and closer to the part where I'm actually going to have my notes 
specifically, the binders with stuff. And in those situations, there's going to be parts where I'm actually going to read to you things that I read to the characters. Descriptions or um, specific events that are happening as you see them. Uh, so you guys will get to actually hear some of those same things that the characters did in those exact same situations. Uh, so I'm pretty excited to, to get to those parts as well. But again, if you have any other questions, shoot me here or no, shoot me. Shoot me a message in the comments or go to onlydraven.com. You can submit feedback or questions at the bottom of the homepage anonymously via email and I'd be happy to hear from you on any feedback you may have. But we're going to go ahead and call that a night. I'd like to thank everybody who's came by and hung out. Special thanks, as always, to my members and to uh, my moderator, Neon. I appreciate all of you guys uh, being so awesome in the community and all of you in the ODG community. I appreciate you letting me tell this story. It's important to me. It's been an important part of my life, and I'm excited I got to share it with everybody. I know it's taken me five minutes to end this stream. I apologize. We'll call that a day. Thank you very much for watching. Have a great day.